to pierce the dark from Battery Park way up to Washington Heights someday maybe well, welcome to Terrace Me Sound episode 265 it's me Gary P and of course it's the prof it's Carol Merry Christmas everyone we're back on the famous film which we all know and love so I'll still Try and get into the festive spirit, Gary. Even though you're not here in the lair with me, and you're on the screen, you've got the Santa beard going on. Anyway, looking rugged. No, I wasn't going to bring up the beard again because I think people are sick of it. But right off the bat, you're going on about the beard. You should do it, boy. <laughs> Christmas period. I think I missed on my opportunity with the rings and Christmas party. I should have just just been Santa. Yeah. Yeah. So jammers this week, prof. We've some serious. Your your niche interviews continue. I'm loving this interview you had with the Afcon one. It was absolutely top class. Um, it reminded me of the Sweeper Pod. Now that Sweeper Pod you were talking to me about recently. Yeah, I've only heard a bit of it, but something I'm I'm meaning to get into because I just I read some of their topics on Twitter and I'm like, I want to hear about all that that mad stuff. Uh it's deadly. It really is. Um. Yeah, so Prof, this week we have a double feature for our book series, and the scribes are out in force. The authors are Ben Jackson, who has written about the history of the AFCON, and Pico will be playing once again very soon. Hannah Dunn interviews John O'Shea about his new book on nine Republic of Ireland women, with a couple of Rovers links in there, and Carl Meeks and Nico Crowley, Teller Person of the Year. Yeah, what a character this man was, Gar. So Prof. <laughs> yeah, he's brilliant. He's a top class man. Uh, 2024 fiction list is out on Friday. So as you're listening to this, you will know who our first couple of people. The whole lot of fixtures are actually. We're recording the night before, but we'll react to it in next week's show. We'll have a little chit-chat about it at the Probs on Sunday at our 80s four in a row live show. So um, it's quite similar to the 70s show. We prof decided to knock one out of the park again. So we're going to be going for 80s. And a little get-together for Christmas for hoops and tifties. So, looking forward to it, bro. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. I think we have the two perfect guests for that one. Um, in terms of um, opening day games, I actually put on <laughs> our first ever episode again for some reason. The one where we sound like robots. But yeah. that, that was actually our whole concept of the first show. We would talk about Rovers opening games of the season. I think we just talked about the last five, but but now nearly seven years later, I'd have to say balls away twenty twenty, the greener last minute winner, uh <laughs> in the mud, muck flying. Uh, I'd also throw in Waterford the year before, twenty nineteen. Great trip, went up in the points and another last minute winner, which uh the disputed goal between Ethan Boyle and uh, Oki, remember that one? Oki Vojic, Oki Vojic. We got into a minor debate about that recently into a, in a WhatsApp group about Oki's merits as a footballer. And I still think it's unfair to actually judge him, considering I think he played for 90 minutes, maybe. Yeah, what was it, the one goal? In oh, he got one against Dundalk, and then the debated one we just spoke about. Yeah, Oki will just forever be a mystery. Yeah. I don't know if he was good or not. I, I just, we'll never know. It was, um, it, how excited were we when he signed? I know. Yeah. striker coming in. 
with a cool nickname as well. We just thought, oh, here we go. Even in the years before yeah. that, we'd have foreign strikers on trial. Like they played in the summer friendlies against, you know, the 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 British clubs. And I just, I was wanted, I was wanted us to sign one, like some Spanish guy from the fourth tier. I just want them to be good <laughs> and banging the goals, but it never happens. And what about the one that got away, Akeem Priestley? Oh, yeah. He was unbelievable. Uh, so feedback on the last episode, Prof, the gent. The gent says, great show. Love that interview with Peter and Bartley. I'm really interested in that book about Finn Harps. Bartley is writing about, have a fun fact for you, about Estonia. They scored less goals than San Marino in the qualifiers, yet they're in a playoff. Also, Justice for Pluto. Hashtag <laughs> justice for Pluto. I knew this would go on, wouldn't go down well. Yeah, it's a call back to uh the winning quiz question for Gary O'Neill. Uh where Pluto didn't count as a planet because it's a dwarf planet there. But didn't affect That's the answer. Prof. Didn't affect the answer anyway, still won. But yeah, there's there's a staff from the gent. Um Marcus Poom's Estonian side. Only got two goals in the qualifiers. San Marino got three. So, we mentioned this last time, didn't we? I just, I don't even want to understand these playoff systems. They're just. <laughs> yeah, they don't try and explain awful. it. Awful. So, Brian McKenna Greenblood, the pod feedback. He says, at Gary, at Carl, I'm not having it. No, sorry. Nope. No more dissing the bounty. The best bar gone. You can have five every day because they're fruit. And one knows you can have five. And one knows you can have five every single day. Um, I'm not a like I'm not dissing the bounty. Like I'll eat it. I'll eat the red bounty more than anything. The dark one. But um, I actually I'm enthralled with a Twitter thread or an X thread at the minute. There's a bloke called Charlie Murphy who's going out and he's buying eight tubs of each one. So he got it. He went out and he bought eight tubs of roses, celebrations, quality three heroes, and he's doing stats on them, prof. Oh, he's counting up how many, how many yeah. like Mars, uh, Twix, Bounty, whatever. He's doing God's work, yeah. So you have, I think the only kind of big noticeable thing was, um, and rightly so, was there was no orange creams. I think there was three orange creams in the roses, which I'm very happy with. That is disgraceful. Because it's wonderful. Well, you go for the strawberry ones first, but next one I'm going for is the orange. And the fact there's only three in there is outrageous. No, I think they might have fell in by accident, but no, it's it's <laughs> gas. And then he goes around and he, I think he's giving them the old folks home. So yeah, it was, it's a, it made a couple of slow days fairly entertaining. That's something, I never, something I never thought about, Gary. Disproportionate number of chocolates <laughs> <laughs> in each packet of celebrations or quality treat or whatever. Everything was kind of on level with each other. Bar celebrations, celebrations. There was like. Uh, way more Milky Way Mars and Snickers in every box. So, but they're the they're the marquee bars, aren't they? For them, mm-hmm. uh, Mike McCarthy, Prof. The Senator, just been listening to the podcast. I thought it was AA Road Watch at the beginning, and then I thought it was Love Oil and McCarthy Love Story. <laughs> we were wondering about this, weren't we? We were like, What the fuck is Mick mean? And then we forgot we were talking about bus routes for about five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I actually forgot we were talking about that. Yeah. Uh, actually, Jim Conroy says he's going to get the new 74 from Eden Keeger, so that'll drop him right outside the probs. Uh, oh, lovely stuff. I've yet to try this new bus now. Uh, my response to Mick is, uh, Mick, your beloved pines, you'll make Kearns, 
Are you aware that Pat Jennings Jr.? I don't know if this has already happened yet or it's going to happen. I just wrote it down ages ago. He's bringing the FEI Cup trophy into the Pines for a little Pat's celebration. Now, I thought this was a Rovers pub. I thought this was a piss take at first. I thought it was some pub in Newry or something. It's a strange one. Um, I'm going to have the gay crash this one, Prof, and bring the league trophy. <laughs> Yeah, we also, so um, Go on. <laughs> we also had everyone doing their Spotify raps. So this was mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, I think, was it? So then everyone was just posting what percentage fan they were. So you had a 6%, then you had a 4%, and it got more and more impressive. Then I saw a 2%. Don't think I saw one. If you're a 1% fan, uh, send us the follow. Uh, I didn't see one. But I think like, the maximum seemed to be... Uh, 5,500 minutes. So now it's a couple of big fans of ours had that figure. So maybe that is the the amount that we actually recorded in 2023. But I suppose you could listen to some older episodes too and that would boost your your numbers. Um, Barry's response to it was, proud to say I've listened to zero minutes of the podcast this year. Yeah. He's, um, he's a fallen soldier, unfortunately. What's going on with Barry, actually? You just... He's you don't, see, you don't see much Barry. In love, you're next. You, you'll be off hosting <laughs> uh, relationship podcasts in a year. What? No, no. See, I can balance things, Gareth. Unlike him, you don't see... You don't see, you don't see Barry the way days or the the member, the Rawers events around them. And now, now he's not even listening to the podcast. And he, he got a bit me. cocky, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Corner, didn't he? My response to him was, just for that, the return of Connor's Corner. Now I don't have it ready this week, but it will return in the new year. And he thinks everyone out of material. Oh, 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 oh no. Oh no, no, no. I have plenty not. of material left. So prof, very, very proud to announce this one. Once again, we've been doing it whenever we can since it's been announced the live podcast in January thirteenth. Um a preseason extraordinaire, a Review of the four in a row, all sorts going on in the Civic Theatre. Um, get your front row seats, prop. That's all I'd say because they're getting snapped up. Yeah, tickets were actually selling very well. We, we were just having a quick look there, and uh, you never know something like this. I mean, it's all it's all pretty new for us, but the response has been great. Uh, a lot of interest. A lot of people text me about it, asked me, asked me about it. Like I have friends who are gone who are not even Rowers fans. They're just like, yeah, I'll have no idea what's going on, but sure, yeah, I'll, I'll come. Boy, dig it. Absolutely. If one of your mates is performing on stage, you're going to go either way. You're going to take the piss or support. You're yeah. going to go. Yeah, so we're going um, yeah, to so have a very good crowd in attendance, Gare, uh, already. Only a couple of weeks in, really, promoting, aren't we? And we've got another month to go. So, um, yeah, January 13th, 8 p.m., Civic Theatre, just across the road from the square. It's the perfect Christmas prezi, really. If you're struggling to think of something as a present for a Rowers fan, it's 25 quid. We're going to put on a great show. This is a stocking fitter. Absolutely. And then we're probably going to organise a little drink afterwards as well. So it'd be maybe half 10, 11 by the time we finish up. We'll pop into uh, make a Rovers night out as well. So there's a there's even a piss up after it. So Definitely, um, looking forward to it, and uh, it's it's gonna be funny. I'm I'm looking forward to it. 
especially yeah. with the guests that we have announced coming up soon. We won't say a thing yet. Yeah, I think we'll actually uh, reveal them at the end of the show. So there's something for you to look forward to. Because we had the task of picking one member of the 80s for in a row and one from the current team. So if you saw our, saw our promotional poster, that's what we were talking about. We're linking the past and the present. And you have special guests from the TFE's universe. But uh, yeah, we'll tell you that at the end of the show. I also want to mention... The left uh, footers are in force, Prof. Oh, yes. I also wanted to mention that we got a DM on Instagram. So <laughs> you remember we were reading out all the stats from the the season tickets. So yeah. you had... <laughs> So you had uh, like we we broke the three thousand mark, and then the sell stand actually sold out already. Uh, we got a message asking for any spare sell stand <laughs> season tickets on the day they sold out in November. November. So that's the best message we've ever gotten. <laughs> Put it into the group and everybody's cracking up. It's brilliant. <laughs> <November>. <laughs> That's a good like it's a proud moment for the club. A proud moment um, for the club, yeah. The Sean Sprague moment of the year. Yeah. So we have the South Stand Collective gift drive. So this is a bunch of creative Rovers fans who are trying to make a change in the community and in and around fan culture. So what is going on? There is a toy drive. So if you are going up to get your Christmas present in the shop and you feel that you can spare an extra 10 or 15 quid on a little small toy from ages between seven months, six months to 18 years, drop it into the shop and we'll get it parked off. And um, Southstand Collective will bring it to uh, the right charity. So we have a GoFundMe as well, Prof. We are up at 2,200 euro at the GoFundMe. It's it's gone beyond what we thought it would ever go near. That's brilliant. It's going to respond. Yeah, respond Fairhouse Family Pub. It's a homeless charity in Fairhouse. So it's a brilliant, brilliant initiative. Thanks to everyone who has taken part. And we have a little gift for one lucky person who donated. So we're going to be doing a giveaway soon when the GoFundMe is done. So do not forget. We will announce that soon. It's a nice little care package that we're giving away just for, as a thank you to one of the donators. And we have the Pico T-shirt collection. So if you're coming up to collect your Pico T-shirt on Saturday or Sunday in the bras, bring a toy with you as well. So that means we can donate that as well. But uh, once again, all of the profits from the Pico T-shirt drive have been donated. And it started off the GoFundMe. So it pretty much kick-started it with 350 quid profit. And um, a great start to the to the go for me. And the Pico T-shirt looks the biz, Prof. I believe you'd be picking yours up on Sunday. I will indeed, Gar. Very excited to put on my uh, Pico T-shirt. Um, yeah, I'm loving the the SSC initiative so far, Gar. Off to a great start. So uh, I'll be rocking plenty, my Pico T-shirt. More to come, so great to see some more fan-led initiatives coming up. And but speaking of Pico, Prof. The AFCON next month, he's jetting off to the Ivory Coast on New Year's Day with the Cape Verde squad. What a what an adventure. And now we have Ben Jackson, the first person to actually write a book on the tournament. So here's Ben. So we're joined now by Ben Jackson. He's the author of the Africa Cup of Nations, the history of an underappreciated tournament. And so the Africa Cup of Nations explores the vibrant history of one of football's iconic but often overlooked 
international tournament. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks for having me, Cole. So my first question, I guess, is where did the interest in African football begin? And then how did it end up becoming your first book? Yes, yeah, so it's uh, a quite a long story, I guess, going back to, I think, around 2011. Um, I was at sixth form at the time, and a friend of mine was like, um, basically, do you want to come to Sierra Leone and do some football coaching? Um, he had a family friend who worked as an air hostess who'd made some connections over there. And she was looking to take a couple of teenagers over there to kind of do some football coaching with a couple of like the kind of like young community groups and stuff. I'd never heard of Sierra Leone at the time, uh, but I was like, yeah, sure. I've never been to Africa. I've never been anywhere like this before. Um, so we went over and I just completely fell in love with the country and kind of seeing their kind of passion for football and stuff like that. Um, and then off the back of that, I just got really interested in African football and kind of African politics and African kind of um history um so all kind of connected into one one thing off the back of this kind of this trip that we went over there for and like we played football loads of people um we um uh, just yeah just chatting to people about kind of the history of sierra leone uh the only thing i'd really known about it before was was the film blood diamond uh, i don't know if people have seen that <laughs> they'll kind of know it's all about that the civil war that took place um but we were there quite quite long after it um but you could still feel those kind of like repercussions from that um and after that, yeah, I, I started watching the Africa Cup of Nations a lot more. Um, my team, Reading, hadn't really had many African players at that point, so it wasn't even like something I'd really seen. Um, but yeah, from kind of 2011 onwards, it's been it's just something I've really enjoyed. I uh, went to university and studied international relations, then I did African politics off the t- on the top of that as a master's. So kind of the, the, the politics and history has kind of always been there, but then my love for football on top of that, it just kind of all came together. Um, and in terms of writing the book, I was just it's one of those things where you're kind of, you're looking for who else has done something like this. And you're kind of like, I'd love to read a book on the history of this tournament. And there's no one had done it. Um, so I was like, I've always wanted to write a book. I love this kind of this topic and this con- uh, the history of the competition. I'm sure it's really fascinating. Um, and kind of the idea for it as well, in the sense that even though I, like, I love this tournament and I love kind of African football, I'm so interested in it. Um, for a lot of people, it is just kind of like a nuisance that like you get the AFCON every two years and people do just get a little bit like, oh, well, it's taking our best players away in the middle of the season, especially from the European point of view. Um, so I thought like, well, surely this this tournament's more than just a nuisance. Surely there's more to it than that. Um, as someone who loves watching the games and the off-the-pitch stuff as much as the on-the-pitch stuff is is super, super entertaining. Um, but then diving into it in terms of the in terms of a book and stuff, you just become completely like enamoured by it. Um so yeah, I get kind of like a long-winded way of saying that's how I, I kind of reached this point. Um, and I guess like COVID kind of accelerated everyone's kind of interest in doing stuff for themselves and just being like, well, I may as well, if I've got the time to do something, I may as well do it. Um, so the idea for a book came during COVID, but I didn't really think about it until a couple of years ago, basically. Yeah, I remember being surprised, actually. I searched Amazon figuring that someone must have written a book about the AFCON and then the first result was was you which only being published now but um so yeah the Ivory Coast uh will be hosted this tournament first time since 1984 uh so second time it's been moved to winter for weather conditions there's also the conflict with the European club competitions which we might touch on a bit later but in terms of the history like it had humble beginnings I think there's only three teams in the first ever tournament back in the, was the 50s 
Um, but like the history, like we've we've witnessed uh, tremendous teams, the great Ghana side of the nineteen sixties, Zaire of the nineteen seventies, the dominant Egypt side of the two thousands. So, did you discover anything particularly interesting to you in your research of? Uh, I guess the, the rich history of this tournament. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that first tournament you spoke about, it's I just find it so fascinating looking back at these kind of footballing pioneers, I guess, at the time, because we now, it's such a global game and it's so big and kind of, it just seems obvious that we've reached this point. But if you go back to like the 50s where you especially had Egypt, Ethiopia, Sudan, and it was South Africa at the time. Um, I'll touch upon why they weren't then involved, but you had these four nations basically fighting it out to be represented on the global international scale with FIFA. Like they had to really fight for African representation because if like listeners will probably know or like may not know, but obviously at the time Africa is colonized, like it's still in the fifties, there's still very few independent states. And these are just a couple of the independent states. And Egypt are one of those teams that I feel like you could probably write a whole book on their footballing history because they're one of the the kind of African pioneers when it comes to football, but Ethiopia and Sudan, like if you mentioned those two names to footballing fans, they would not probably be able to tell you anything about those two nations, but they're two of the founding members. They've both won AFCONs. Um, they've probably, yeah, I think in some senses, like they, if you kind of look at Morocco at the moment, people are like, yeah, Morocco are a great team, but they've won as many African Cup of Nations tournaments as Ethiopia and Sudan. Uh, they were kind of in the same sort of thing. So that, that really fascinated me. Um, and it is kind of the the story of South Africa as well that kind of weaves its way through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way up to the 90s when they come back is really, really fascinating um, because South Africa were initially meant to go to, uh, it was meant to be in Egypt and Sudan for the first tournament. South Africa were meant to be that it's meant to be this four-team tournament, but they said we'll only bring a white team or a black team. Uh, or a coloured team, I guess they called it at the time. They're like, we're going to bring one of those teams. We're not going to bring a mixed team. And this is during the height of kind of anti-colonialism, decolonization, all that sort of stuff. So the other three teams were like, well, you're not coming at all. Then we'll we'll ban you from it. And that kind of that's the end of South Africa in terms of they kind of they're there at the beginning and then they disappear for so many years and come back in the nineties. Um, so I really did find those early tournaments fascinating and finding kind of old school footage of a couple of the goals and like reading. Um, kind of like the, the match reports and stuff like that, because obviously back then match reports are really, really important. And FIFA was constantly kind of checking up on the game in Africa because they saw it as kind of like this sub level of football that wasn't, they weren't ready. Kind of like it was this whole colonial idea that they need to be educated, they need to be like shown how to do football. Um, and they're constantly checking up. And there's like a report, I think, from the first final where they're like, everyone was really well behaved, the fans were very polite and all that sort of stuff. But then as you go through the years, that completely changes. Like the fans have become what we know as no football fans to be today, like very passionate, very intense. Um, and lots of incidents like that happened during qualification and during tournaments and things like that. But just kind of charting that kind of history of the game in Africa through the Africa Cup of Nations, it's just, I just found it completely fascinating. Um, and yeah, like I said, those early tournaments, I just found really, really interesting to see kind of as the tournament grows, more teams get decolonized, more teams join, who's then kind of being pushed down the pecking order, who's kind of rising to the top. Because I think we just take so many of these countries that we know within, within the African football world to be good for granted now. We don't really think about, well, how did that happen? Like, How did they go from this to that? Um, and yeah, kind of like 
Ghana have always been good. Egypt have probably always been good. But there's other teams that do just kind of, they fluctuate throughout the uh, the history of the tournament. Yeah, so you can expect uh, many stories of redemption and achievement in your book, such as uh, the triumphant or the triumph of Zambia in 2012 after the tragedy of the 1993 plane crash and the return of South Africa in the 1990s following apartheid, which you just mentioned a moment ago. Um, like for for South Africa in winning the 19, 1996 tournament uh, at home, uh, the racially mixed team seemed to symbolise football's power to bridge the gaping social and economic equalities left by apartheid. So for you, was that one of the most interesting stories in your book or would you pick something else? Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the... It feels like a really big moment in South Africa at the time. And I think it was really interesting. I chatted to Peter Allegai, who's a a kind of professor in this in the field of, of footballing history and sports history in Africa, especially. And he's written loads of books on kind of the history of football. Um, and speaking to him about that moment was really fascinating because it is just that everyone talks about the rugby win uh, for South Africa kind of you got the you got the film with Matt Damon you've got all that sort of stuff but <laughs> yeah you watch this final when they play um Tunisia in the final and if you compare it to watching the the final in the rugby game like that the obviously the crowd at the rugby game is completely white like that just there's very few other races kind of depicted in the final and in, in the crowd but you then go to this uh the AFCON final and it's just completely mixed and it's just such a symbol of like kind of this rainbow nation that Mandela wanted to create. And the fact that at the end he's wearing Captain Neil Tovey's, like he's got a Neil Tovey shirt on, uh, just kind of symbolizing that kind of, he wants to bridge that divide between the two. And these guys just weren't able to play together either. So you've kind of, for South Africa, it's like the nineties, it's suddenly we've got to catch up with Cameroon. We've got to catch up with Egypt. We've got to catch up with all these teams because we haven't had the chance to play as a mixed team at all over the last couple of years. Like they did play some international games, but these like unsanctioned matches that there was like, I think three different footballing associations within the country all kind of battling it out to kind of be the dominant footballing association. Um, but it is, yeah, that, that tournament, especially kind of like following the story of it is fascinating because you just think that it was the inevitable outcome was that South Africa were going to win that tournament. Like when you watch the games back and you kind of follow what was being, how it's being reported and stuff, you get to the end, you're like, well, this is just the logical conclusion. Um, but then it is interesting that for Nigerians, they'd probably argue that it's not that impressive because they weren't there. Um, and I think it's Kanu even said that as well. Like he said, it just doesn't count as a win because we, we'd have won it if we were there. Um, but yeah, I explain why they're not there in the book. And it's a really interesting and quite heartbreaking story actually as to why Nigeria in the 90s probably had the best team in Africa, but they barely got to compete in Af- AFCON because of like politics and everything that was going on at the time. Yeah, my first memory of football is probably the 1994 World Cup, and I remember that Nigerian team. So to not compete in the 1996 AFCON was was uh, heartbreaking. But another one that fascinates me is uh, when political tensions uh, violently disrupted the 2010 AFCON. So you had the Togo team bus was attacked by separatist gunmen as it travelled to uh, Angola on its way to the tournament. So... You had two officials and the bus driver were killed in the attack and then Togo ended up uh, withdrawing from the 
2010 tournament. So then it was held. It was a 15 team tournament was held. So do you cover this story in the book? Yeah. So uh, for those who who can't remember that one, um, it was yeah really kind of strange decision for Mangola to kind of host some of the games in. I think the region's called Cabinda. Um, and it's not if you look on a map, it's kind of it's separate from Angola and it's had a separatist kind of movement for decades now. Um, but to then go and stick a tournament right in that in that kind of region was always going to be quite risky. Um, and that it is just yeah, it's an absolute tragic loss of life in terms of, yeah, like you said, the bus driver, a couple of staff members. And then I think if I remember rightly, one of the Togolese goalkeepers as well, like he just he can he can never play again uh, off the back of that. Um, then he's gone on to do some incredible charity work and kind of work with children to like help them kind of play football and education and stuff like that. So it's like you have these tragic moments, but it's amazing the resilience that people use to follow it up with. But amazingly, like they they kept playing uh, in Cabinda, like Togo leave, but then all the other teams kept playing. And initially, because they left. Uh, CAF said, well, or I think with one of FIFA or CAF were going to be like, well, you can't play in the next tournament uh, because you've just withdrawn. And obviously everyone's like, well, that's ridiculous. This is like, <laughs> literally been a, there's been a violent attack on their bus. And it was obviously rescinded um, after that. But yeah, Togo, another, they're another nation that's been completely fascinating in the sense that that is like their period was kind of around about then. Obviously they made the World Cup in 2006, which again, when you look back, it's an incredible achievement. Um They've never really done it at AFCON level. Um, and now they're in complete, like, kind of freefall as a, as a nation in terms of football. Uh, they're really not the team they want to be. But obviously, Adebayor is kind of the kind of guiding light of that that situation as well as kind of the team. Um, and he really took upon himself to kind of come out and be the spokesperson for the team during that incident. Um, as you think, because it was, it was a really entertaining tournament. Uh, in Angola at the time like it was one of the really really good ones you saw some stuff starting to emerge like Zambia start to slowly emerge during that tournament but it does cast a massive shadow over it um, and that's one of the first stories I remember kind of as a kid learning of like hearing about the AFCON was this kind of attack and it kind of it is one of those things that just perpetuated an image of Africa as being complete always completely embroiled in conflict and everything like that in this unsafe country where you then go back and look and you say well they they took football to a place that was there was always the chance that it was going to happen because of the historical tension and the political tension and kind of the situation within Angola at the time. Yeah, we've talked a lot about it off the pitch there, but on the pitch, like, what would you think about when I ask you about the best matches at the AFCON? I, I was I was on your Twitter earlier. Uh, you mentioned a game between Angola and Mali in 2010 when the hosts Angola were 4-0 up with just over 10 minutes to go and uh, ended up drawing four all. So does that stick out to you as some of the best games uh, you've witnessed in the AFCON? Yeah, that one was just ridiculous. Uh, it's a great one to watch back if people haven't. Like, It's just that classic adage of kind of what 2-0 is a dangerous scoreline in football. But then if you say that to an Angolan fan, they're probably like 4 nils <laughs> just as dangerous. Um, yeah, absolutely crazy. And you, you kind of, you don't believe it's going to happen. Like every time you rewatch it, you're like, is this, is this actually going to happen? Like <laughs> surely this can't happen again. Um, so that one's, yeah, that one's definitely kind of up there as like one of the better games uh, that the tour- that I've seen from the tournament. But then some of the other finals as well were really entertaining. Um, it's like the 1984 final 
between Cameroon and Nigeria. Uh, Cameroon win it 3-1, but the quality of goals uh, that Cameroon scores. So they go 1-0 down uh, within the first couple, like 10 minutes. Uh, they're leveled at half time, and then in the last like 10 or so minutes, they they get two two goals. And the quality of those goals was just absolutely fantastic. Really, really like enjoyable one to watch. Um, and there's just so many. Like, it's, it is really hard to kind of pinpoint those classic games, but that four all will always, I think, always stick in the memory because it is just just it was also the opening game of the tournament as well. So you just feel like it sets the tone if you can have a good game uh, to open the tournament and. Yeah, to be fair, most of the kind of the South Africa 96, there were some really, really enjoyable games to watch there. Like the final was quite an enjoyable one to rewatch. Um and yeah, Tunisia, the Tunisian final just a couple of years before where Nigeria were there. And they beat a Zambia side. And the 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 story of Zambia, I'll kind of go off on a little bit of a tangent, is is kind of bookended in 1994 and then the 2012, because 1994, they've just kind of recovered this squad from the crash um they've kind of had to put this team together because they lost basically everyone there's only a couple of players left and the only players that really survived were the ones that were playing in Europe who were fortunate enough to have done that so you've got these the couple that were left with this rest of this team that they've just kind of got together put onto the pitch and they make the final and you just think they're gonna do it and then they go one nil up, and you're like, surely this is like this is going to be historic. And they just miss out because that Nigeria team, like you said, that you saw at the World Cup, they, they were just so strong. But then 2012 comes, and they're just like off the coast of where the the crash happened, where the plane went down in Gabon, and then they win it. Not in the not the most memorable game, uh, Zambia against Ivory Coast in the 2012 final when it finishes nil nil. Most people kind of remember that one as the penalty shootout that went on for quite a while, but it was kind of the historical moment makes that for me quite an in- enjoyable game because you know that they're about to achieve this incredible feat that you wouldn't really ever... It's very hard, I think, for that to happen again where a team like Zambia would win the Africa Cup of Nations just because of the amount of talent on the show at the moment. And if you look at the squad that did win it, like the players never really went on to do anything incredible after that. Like It's not like they you have like a Salah or a Mane or a Marles from these guys. It's just... It just everything seemed to click for them in that moment. And it was just like this historical kind of coming of age that should have happened a couple of years, like a decade or two decades prior. Maybe Pico Lopez and uh, Cape Verde can uh, take inspiration from, <laughs> yeah, from yeah. 2012. But in terms of the attitude towards the AFCON, uh, like in long, for a long time, the African nations have been seen as a bit of a nuisance to European clubs and fans. What's your opinion on that attitude? Has it been getting worse or better? Or what? what's your feeling on it these days? I, I don't know if it's got worse, but I think it's just, I think with kind of the age of, like I sound really old when you say it's like that, but the age of social media, all this sort of stuff, is what I've noticed is whenever a tournament comes about, like clips will just surface online that are not from that tournament. They're from like, probably like five, six years ago. But these big kind of like clickbait football accounts would be like, oh, I can't believe this has happened in the AFCON. And it just perpetuates this image of like a stupid tournament where the Africans don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to run it. They don't know how to like manage this tournament. It's just horrendous and the standard's awful and all this sort of stuff. But on the other hand, now that it's kind of, it's getting more televised, like you can 
nearly watch hopefully every single game if they televise it properly like it it should improve like because as well that like, you've got so many household names involved in it and i think that's what you see kind of throughout the history is you're obviously at the beginning all these guys are kind of local players like they're playing for their club sides in cameroon in ghana in nigeria and they're still good players like they still could have gone to europe but the finances were never really worth the move um like you think of the 1974 Zaire side, like Mobutu, President Mobutu, he kind of buys loads of these players back from their clubs. It's kind of like an early, very early, weird way of kind of sports washing. But let's say like the UAE just bought these players to play back, like back for the UAE. Um, so you have all these kind of local players and it's then, well, if they're not playing in Europe or they're not being televised, no one really knows about it. So it's quite kind of like siloed off. But now you kind of move into the 90s, move into the 2000s, and it's very rare that you'll get teams full of um, players that play domestically. Um, they may play continentally, but very rarely domestically. Um, so I think that probably helps it in terms of reach and stuff because people are like, well, I want to watch Salah, I want to watch Mane, I want to watch Mahrez, and I can watch these guys on the stage. And you look at the most of the Algerian squad will be playing in European countries. But then you do... I think the thing that I still love is that you'll get every now and then you'll get a Sudan, you'll get an Ethiopia, you'll get a Malawi that turn up and all their players are domestic. And you're like, this is like, this is what makes it such a good tournament is those sort of things. So I think, I still think it's seen as a nuisance. Like the more people talk about it, especially coming up to this tournament this year is like, oh, these teams are going to be missing this player and this player and this player rather than like, isn't it great that this player is going to go and play for his country? Like, Who's going to win the tournament? Like, The discourse is always who's missing from the Premier League or who's missing from the Bundesliga and all these leagues rather than like, isn't it great? Who's going to win? Um, so hopefully that will start to change, but I, I can't imagine it will because domestic football, it feels like it's kind of starting to go above international football at the moment. So we'll do a little preview of uh, the upcoming tournament. So you got Senegal, who are defending champions there in Group C with Cameroon. Um, I suppose the interest of this podcast, Cape Verde, they're in Group B with uh, Egypt, who won the uh, record number of trophies with seven. And then you have Ghana and Mozambique. There's actually two Irish angles in this group because uh, Ghana are managed by former Ireland international player and assistant manager Chris Hewton. Uh, his dad's from Ghana. So I suppose Cape Verde, I mean, the top two teams will qualify from the group automatically. Then you have the four best third place teams will advance to the knockout stage. They did qualify for the last 16 last time, two years ago. Um, So Group B, um, do you give Cape Verde a chance of uh, getting out of them? Yeah, I'd, I'd be surprised if they didn't finish third. Um. I think you'd you'd look at that and think Egypt Ghana obviously is one two, but Afcon has a funny way of like messing with these teams. And I've watched I watched a bit of Ghana the other day, and if I remember that they lost to Rwanda and they looked really really poor. Um, or they drew it was one of the, I think yeah I think it was Ghana that I watched and they just didn't look great um, out there. So it's kind of like you look at them as names and you think yeah maybe, but and I think Chris Hutton's under a little bit. Of pressure because they expect to finish first or second so yeah Cape Verde I think the problem Cape Verde have had is kind of when they first kind of came on like bounced onto the the scene they had some really kind of 
exciting flair players that, that no one had really known about. But these guys are starting to get a little bit older, um, and especially someone like Julio Tavares, who's kind of like the shining, kind of the leading striker. He's just looking a little bit dated now, um, which is a shame. But I'd be, yeah, I'd be shocked if they didn't finish third or at least have the chance of kind of going through in third place. And you just don't know. Like they open against Ghana. Um, they could easily nick a point there. Just AFCON has this funny way of just doing things like that, where I think it's one of those tournaments where you're more likely to like teams will really like play the opposition, like as hard as they possibly can. They just don't really back down or give up. And you even kind of like in qualification, it's it's such a slog to win a game. I feel like in international football, when it comes to Af- the continent uh, the African continent. So I think, they should kind of go in confident that they can finish third, but also thinking we could probably nick a point or two off these other two. Um, Egypt should should really, like, they they owe it, I think, to Mo Salah to really try and win this thing and, like, give him the best that they possibly can. But I've, I've watched some of their games as well and they've looked a bit shaky at the back. So I think Cape Verde should be pretty confident going into the tournament. Um, Mozambique a little bit unknown I don't know too much about them like historically they've never really done much at the tournament but again it's AFCON that anything can happen Yeah just a few calls here from uh, Pico himself he took on Sadio Mane two years ago uh, from Senegal uh, just went out 2-0 in the last 16 and Senegal went down to win the tournament but um, he says Salah is in frightening form he just says I need to trust what I believe is best to do. So I probably watched him, um, meaning Salah, uh, through closed hands at the moment because he's in frightening form. Uh, Liverpool are devastating. He's one of the best players in the world. It's difficult, but you have to take the name and stature out of the player. If I treat them like royalty, they've won the game before I started. That's the way I view it. I must try to be the best version of myself. I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to play and test myself against the best players in the world. Mo Salah has incredible skill. Uh, it'll be difficult against his balance, technique, and strength, but I need to trust what I believe is best I can do, not just put him on a pedestal that I can't reach. I remember screaming at the TV saying, why are you showing him his left side? Just keep him on his right foot. But that's easier said than done. Uh, he's strong, and for a player small in stature, his hold of play is so good. Uh, there's loads of scenarios, but the main one is trying to stop the ball getting to him. I'll be screaming at the lads to get the ball and stop it at the source, but these are the sort of things that you want to be challenged with to see where you're at and see how you can improve. So um, do, do you envy uh, Pico's task here against uh, Mo Salah? <laughs> absolutely not. Absolutely not. He should definitely uh, take a, a leaf out of Usman Kaikai's book. Uh, so Sierra Leone played Egypt in World Cup qualification the other day. And he just got very, very physical with Salah all game. And he was proper kind of straight on him every single time really did actually minimize him but it's like pico says it's kind of like he's, you're still shouting don't let him cut in on his left foot and they st- he just he just finds the space to do it um but i think he like pico is one of those players that you kind of you look at and you this is kind of the attitude that i'm trying to like that i've seen when i've watched the tournament is like he says i won't put him on a pedestal like i'm gonna go and give like show what i can do and i feel like that's probably what's gonna happen is Salah may get the better of him, but at the end of the day, he said, well, I've given my all and I've done the best I can against him. Um, and it's a great opportunity, I guess, for him to kind of show what he can do against the likes of Mo Salah, because how often does any of us <laughs> get a chance to play against him uh, in any sort of 
any most leagues around the world. And I feel like he's one of those players that people do raise their game for. So hopefully he can he can shut him out and do his job. But I guess he's kind of then relying on the rest of the team to to help him out a little bit. Yeah, he'll depart for Ivory Coast on January first. So uh, the New Year celebrations might be a bit subdued, but stories like Pico, who he qualified through uh, heritage through his his dad. Um, I know you're particularly interested in Belgian links to African nations, but players who probably wouldn't have otherwise got a chance to compete on a big international stage against world famous players. Have you seen some of stories similar to Pico? Yeah, it's especially in recent years, um, it's become a massive kind of using that diaspora of kind of access to players that you didn't normally use. Like Senegal were really kind of they didn't really do this and then they really started to do it late 90s and that's when they're kind of they completely change picking up players like from France who can qualify for Senegal uh, Equatorial Guinea uh, a side that many people probably don't know much about you look at their squad and it's full of players that play in kind of the Spanish second tiers or third tiers or even sometimes the fourth and fifth tiers but they qualify for Equatorial Guinea so they get them to come and play for them and they have completely that kind of come into their own, I guess, as a team um, off the back of that. And I think you, you just do see it quite a lot more now than we used to. Um, there were some early kind of examples of it, but it was quite rare because a lot of the kind of players were domestically based anyway. So they just kind of went with those guys. Um, but yeah, especially now, like your big countries can do it quite a lot, like your Nigerias, your Ghanas, like a lot of them can pick up players that wouldn't, Main, probably a lot of like English players uh, or players that could have played for England but don't or didn't um, who now can qualify and will go play for them. Um, it's an inter- it's an interesting dynamic and I, I kind of feel like there's definitely an interest in kind of looking at how does that impact the grassroots game in those countries, like especially Equatorial Guinea. I feel like that's a really interesting case for like, well, where are the local players like able to come through if you're just going to keep picking these players from other parts, like how does that help develop a, a strong national team? Um, Cape Verde, I guess, is, is kind of similar in the sense that they can look to Portugal. They've got those historical links, uh, the colonial links, I guess, with Portugal um, and pick up players who kind of born in Portugal have that heritage link. Um, so I think for the players, I think it's great. And I think for a lot of them, they're more willing to take the opportunity now than they probably were before uh, because they get to go and play at AFCON, they get to play against Mo Salah, they get to play at an international tournament and your career is so short, why wouldn't you take that opportunity? Um, you may just have to deal with sometimes the internal politics of these countries and their football association politics more often than not can be slightly interesting. Um, you may be playing for five or six different managers in the space of two years, but that's kind of just kind of par for the course, I guess. Um, but yeah, I guess for someone like Pico, it must be amazing to know that he's going to get to go in January to the Ivory Coast and play against Egypt and Ghana and Mozambique in an international tournament. Like it's just every kid's kind of dream. Yeah, so the competition will begin on January 13th. Uh the final will be played on February eleventh. Um who are you uh picking to win? Oh yes that's a tough one. Um I think Morocco should be the favourites just based on what they did in the World Cup. Uh, they, they've got one of the strongest squads but I just I don't know historically at AFCON they just don't do very well um, not so I think I, I, I'm going to back Egypt I think just because I feel like this is Salah's kind of last chance and I think he's going to 
be doing everything he possibly can to win it. Um, but I could easily see the Ivory Coast doing well at home. Tunisia aside, you can always actually look out for. Um, they'll probably draw all their games in the group stages, go through in third place, and make it to the semi-finals because that's just they just kind of roll through boringly, making it through tournaments. Um, so I think Morocco favourites for me, but I think it's going to be Egypt, and I think that's going to be. I think Salah's kind of he's ready to finally deliver this one. So as my last question, um, you also host the Belgian Football League podcast. So this one is for our Rovers audience. Uh, our friends Ghent, who we played in the 2022 Europa League conference group stages. Uh, how have they been getting on the last 12 months since they uh, met Shamrock Rovers? Yeah, they've had a, an interesting couple of a couple of months, I guess you could say. they Obviously, they strike absolute gold in the January transfer window with Gift Orban. Uh, if people haven't heard of him, he just completely ripped apart the Conference League kind of knockout stages, just scoring for fun. They have they should be challenging for the title this season. They've had a bit of an iffy start, um, but they've got kind of the firepower to do it. Off the pitch, they're, they're trying to get more investment and more money into the club, which I think kind of every football club's doing at the moment. Um, but yeah, they had, um, they've had a couple of decent results recently, and I think they're going to be right up there challenging for the title this season um so probably might not see them again in the conference league next year if they can make it into the champions league um although that was one of those fixtures last year that made me just fall in love with the conference league in the sense that we got to see clubs that wouldn't be historically haven't played each other for so long finally getting grouped into these things and just teams from all over europe finally getting to play european football that have been denied it because of how the Champions League is such a closed shop and the Europa League just kind of has squeezed it out. So, yeah, that was one of the more enjoyable uh, first round uh, group stage ties that we saw, uh, for sure. Yeah, well, Ben, looking forward to reading the book. Um, when is it out and where can people buy it? Uh, so it's that 1st of January. Uh, it's just, yeah, a nice little New Year's Day maybe order. Um, and it's available, yeah, pretty much all, all bookshops and online as well. Um, so if you just search Africa Cup of Nations... Uh, book it should just come up on google and you can kind of pick your choices to where you want to get it or you can get it directly from uh, pitch publishing uh pitch publishing are the guys that uh, produced it and were willing to let me uh write about it so yeah definitely want to give a massive shout out to them and i guess if anyone is listening and thinking of writing a book they're definitely a great great one to go to if you're looking at football and football history uh they really are willing to kind of let you run with your ideas so yeah would highly recommend them great stuff man thanks very much for joining us Cheers, thank you very much. So that was Ben and Prof, another one again, a niche interview that I loved. Um, I totally forgot about the whole Togo incident as well. And the fact that when you think back on it and you and you look at it with hindsight, the fact that that tournament went ahead was insane. And the fact that they got punished for not competing in it is absolutely batshit. I actually forgot about that as well. I was looking... Or kind of notable incidents that I could ask him about. And then I saw that and I was like, oh yeah, I remember that on the news. And I remember sort of following it. And it was I remember seeing nuts. the post on the news as well. It was yeah. crazy. So brilliant, the brilliant just interview, seems, really. The tournament just seems sort of full of those political stories and just sort of mad stories like South Africa uh, 96, Nigeria withdrawn in 1996. They were defending champions. And they had to withdraw. Yeah. Uh, 
because of whatever the political climate in the country is at the time, madness going on in the background. Uh, Zambia's win is epic, considering they lose most of the team in the plane crash in 993, and then they win the tournament against the odds in 2012. Brilliant. Um, I brought, I, I was feeling nostalgic. I have me JJ Okocha socks on now. I was uh, I was loving the the Nigeria thoughts. Do you remember? It was a Sunday. Oli say, uh, JJ Okocha, Taribo West. Yeah. What a what a team that was. Yeah, it's a brilliant stuff again. Really, really good interview. Uh, yeah, I suppose we're the late nineties Nigerian players we'd be more familiar with, but. The famous photo of the ninety four World Cup, which I brought up. Um, after the player's name escapes me now, but you know where he, he grabs the net and he sort of Ooh. celebrating it. It's like an iconic World yeah. Cup photo. And that jersey did you, did you... was really eccentric as well, wasn't it? The Nigerian shirt in ninety four. Yeah. But yeah, I find that found that fascinating. I couldn't believe that. Well, Ben couldn't either. That that was the first book written on Afcon. I put it. That's how I found them. I put it in the Amazon. I was like, "How is this the only book?" And it happened to just be coming out now. So I thought this was a nice tie-in to Pigo, considering he uh, he's going to be playing. So the Cape Verde's first game will be against Ghana on January fourteenth. So against Chris there's, Ghana. Yeah, there's your weekend starter, folks. Civic Theater on the Saturday, Bira F Afcon on the Sunday. Bira Afcon and watching Pico do his thing. So, um, our last show, prop Friday, December 4th. So, the Friday Rings End Christmas Party the next day as well. A big event on the calendar. Um, always a success. I couldn't make it out myself, prop but I'm Gary hearing Carson good things. was conspicuous by his absence. <laughs> Brilliant stuff from the lads again. Big raffle. Uh, fantastic donation to the, to the drive from the Friday Rings End as well. So, all Rovers fans chipping in. It's, it's fair play to them, but did you get out for a point yourself in the OH? Yeah, I did. I'm a regular at these uh, rings end things now, aren't I? So, yeah, Irish Town House. Uh, yeah, good day. You had, you had your Huberman. You had a couple of presentations to long-time members. Uh, Well-deserved. Uh, like you said, you had the raffle prizes. Points were had. Uh, always a good afternoon. The only negative, I think, was uh, that squeaky door that triggered me. <laughs> Uh, remind me of the live show. Remind me of our two hundred special that we recorded there, and I just heard it. I just, it just hit me to the core. I thought, oh, I why, why, why didn't I put a me? stopper there? Why didn't I do it? I One of my biggest regrets. I'll go. To, I'll go to my grave with that regret. I'd be like, oh, why didn't I put a stopper in that door? <laughs> That's your your death wish, or your your line <laughs> in your deathbed. What do you regret, girl? <laughs> Fucking squeaky door in the OH. Um, yeah. So Robert Roberts have signed a two year agreement with Mascot Workwear, so it's our first team short sponsor, and a very fruitful relationship continues. The new home jersey training range is released start of December. So our new home kit features a contemporary zigzag pattern with a traditional green and white hooped body, and the color references the club's 125 year history along with two stars above a crest to represent the 20-plus league title. So a mixed reaction to the jersey prof, but a very, very positive one to the training gear. Um, 
the training gear is absolutely stunning. I thought, I thought in general, it was just across the board. It was really good. But mixed reaction to the jersey. Yeah, yeah, definitely mixed reaction. Um, you up the green and grey hoops. <laughs> the green and grey, yeah. It's uh, we'll see what it looks like when it's a full kit. I think you can only judge it then, really, isn't it? Well, listen, if no, we do fire in a roller people... prop. Yeah, a lot of people reference the position of the, the sponsor. It's quite low. But um yeah, was what it was. Like in terms of jerseys, um the new Derry jersey is a beaut, I must say. Whereas Drahada made my eyes bleed. Yeah, it was it was it was it's all over the shop, isn't it? I don't I will be honest, I don't like O'Neill's. Now if I saw a nice O'Neill's jersey, I'd come out and say it, like I wouldn't just blatantly disregard it because it's O'Neill's but O'Neill's does absolutely nothing for me nothing never does never well, it might in the future but it's just it doesn't do anything for me at all I'm not a fan of it Um, the Pats jersey it's another one that's out that was nice Uh, there was another one New, New Balance or sponsor from Waterford and it's very it's very smart you could say the jersey mm. and the uh, and the training gear it's plain is one way of saying it but it's smart Keen Curtis has signed for Wexford FC. Keen joined the club in 2015 when he played for the under-11s from Kilnamana and he played up front and had a steady record of scoring goals throughout his time with the academy. So all the best to Keen, our under-19s player of the year last year. He's gone off to Wexford to um, develop, you could say. He's still a kid. So, um, yeah, wish him all the best. He's going to be playing up top with Tommy Alua, prof. Oh, that'll be a strike for us to be reckoned with, Gerald. So our 2011 group played in the semi-hippie academy winter tournament and won 7 out of 8 games to top their group and to qualify for the final. So our boys were beaten 3-1 on the day by Hammerby in Finland. So the old rivalry is back up and uh, a great experience overall from so many thanks to our hosts and a wonderful couple of days. So semi-hippie, they're doing big things in Finland. This is Greener's team, isn't it? Yeah, I'm nearly sure. No, 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 it's not. Greener is 2009 or 10. It's not 11. But they're doing big things in Finland with stats and data for underage academy development. So uh, hopefully that rubs off on oh, so this, our lives. This isn't Greener's team, but Greener's team did definitely travel, go to Finland recently. Yeah, they travelled. And I think that's why he couldn't do something with us as well, if, you're, if that might ring a bell. Right. Uh, many thanks to the Walk and Football Group who currently donated 500 towards purchase of a new defibrillator for the hall at Rosestone. Talk about self-perseverance. I like that. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it, Gary. Yeah. Fair play to the lads. Brilliant group and a fantastic initiative. Hopefully, we can keep on going. Keep an eye out for the Rovers men's shed. Hopefully, next. Uh, Anyo Gorman was nominated for the Women's Personality of the Year last week at the SWI Awards at the Royal Dublin Convention Centre. So congratulations to Anya. She's a great talker. She was at the Player of the Year Awards. Uh, yeah, Mantelpiece is, uh, is getting pretty full there, isn't it, with the Tifties Award as well? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Blake Brothers will continue as sponsor of the women's team in jerseys in 2024 and 2025. So long-time sponsors renewing with us again um, brilliant brilliant Rovers family and Hoops company um, fair play to them they they just they just love the club um, they're helping restructure and relay Crumlin United's Astro pitch as well so 
Um, excellent stuff from the Blake brothers as usual. And we've Eva Fleming has left the club following the expiration of her contract. The 19th international spent the second half of the 2023 season on loan at three. So all the best and good luck to Mrs. Fleming. Congratulations to Jess Hennessy and Jess Gargan who received their PFBI Women's Premier Division Team and Awards at this, e- or this evening, a couple of weeks ago. So Lee O'Leary won, was on international duty and she couldn't make it. So she was with the 19s and unable to attend the awards. So um, we did well on the ladies' side of things, Prof. Yeah, you would have seen these pictures on on Twitter where it, uh, you had Bradzer gone to the awards and Pigo, he was suited and booted. And then at this one, you had the two Jesses uh, dressed up for their awards. So they uh, deservedly won their Team of the Year awards on the night, uh, which tees up our women's interview, Gar. Absolutely. So, Prof, it's John O'Shea. And it's not the other one. It's not the one you're thinking of, but here he is. It's with Hannah. We're joined by John O'Shea, a freelance journalist in Cork who has written two books, Cork City, Game of My Life, released last year, and more recently, Republic of Ireland Women, A Biography in Nine Lives. Welcome to the show, John. In the book, you feature Linda Gorman, Olivia O'Toole, Claire Scanlon, Stephanie Zambra, Louise Quinn, Katie McCabe, Amber Barra, and two from your hometown, Denise O'Sullivan and Saoirse Noonan. How long did the book take to write and what was the idea behind it? Um, yeah, so well, it, it, initially the idea behind it, I was just after like finishing the first book um, at the Cox game of my life, and then I probably at the time I probably didn't expect to go into a second book so quickly. But I, I say it was just off the back of when the first book was finished um, in October, it would have been October of last year, October 2022. The it was around the same time when the Ireland women's team were playing in, in like in the playoff for the for the women's World Cup um, in Scotland um, in that that memorable night in Hendon Park. So just off the back of that and seeing how just uh, when, when they won that game, you could see the, the significance of it and even the overpouring of the, the emotion and the elation and just the sheer joy of what happened to this. You could see really it was like a real landmark moment. Like go, it was the equivalent like the men's team qualifying for like Italian 90 back in um, back in back in 1990 in Italy. So it was just, it just kind of really prompted it. It just kind of planted maybe a season where he just to, just there's a, there's definitely probably a scope for a bit of, a bit of a book here. So I actually reached out to the Hero Books, the, the publishing company who I, I who who I did my my first book, the, the Cork City book, with. Uh, just to see is there is do you think there's a bit of a book here just off the back of Ireland qualifying for the for the World Cup and the Liam Hayes, the the, the head of Hero Books, kind of put this idea to me about the nine lives kind of projects that they're running that they they had just released one towards the end of last year on the Limerick senior hurling team. So take up the Sunday there and really at the stage he said if you, if you want to kind of incorporate it into the nine lives concept, uh, they definitely would be happy to to kind of plug away a book with it. So then it just it went from there really and then it was over over the kick over the, the course of the next like, over twelve months really I was working on it and just documenting and uh, just trying to find like the nine lives in one sense and just Folks and nine players, but in and top of folks and the nine players, just try to chapter like the the story of the women's um women's football in Ireland and the women's national team as well, and like over like over the course of like thirty, like even go back to Lindo Garman's days. If you go from there to where like where where the Irish women's team got to this summer and in the World Cup in Australia, you could to see it, it it was it it it's 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 it, it's kind of night and day. There's no comparison really. But even go back to a couple of years, even go back to even five or six years ago to 
when Liberty Hall happened as well, it, it, you're going to see how you're going to even see how how things have progressed since then as well. Katie McCabe's sister Lauren is following in her footsteps as well, making her way up through the ranks at Rovers and getting closer to a senior debut. Could you be writing about her as well one day? I, I, I'd say so, but definitely by all accounts, you know, um, she seems very highly highly regarded as um like at Shamrock Rovers and like the fact she like she's like you know and, and she 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 it's all the, the the family she's coming from as well like it's a real that's one thing I just like obviously from researching the book you can see the the, the pedigree um. In, in the family as well, they get their football mad, like even like before, like even before, like I would have been like finally like League of Ireland for years, like obviously would have known them, um, like Gary McCabe from playing like with the likes of Shamrock Rovers and 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 Bray and other clubs in, in the League of Ireland. So, um, yeah, she she seems very kind of highly, highly rated and like you know, it's probably she doesn't have a bad, um, like I suppose the older sister to kind of to, to kind of pick the brain of and to kind of get advice from Lynn Casey as well, because like you're going to see like just the, the platform and even. Even the, even while I was kind of putting the book together and even like documenting and researching like Katie's um particular section, like she was she was scoring goals like in like in like Champions League or goal of the seasons in the in the women's national league over in England and then playing in, in front of like nearly fifty sixty thousand at the Emirates and obviously the the women the, the World Cup of Ireland like she like she really is like at the an elite level operator and I think just to have someone in our family like 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 it can only be. It can, straight away like um over this, any simple conversation over the dinner table it's only going to benefit someone like Lauren straight away but like do I'd say she definitely seems to have a bright future for sure that's definitely what players managers and fans did you speak to in research of the book uh, yeah there was a, a couple of different like you know even like for example like, with, the, with the Katie McCabe um chapters it was good just to speak to one of her first coaches um um Eamon Connington as well and just it was just like it was a real like just to see going back like not even kind of fairly recent times really going in the early in the early two thousands like just to see how like maybe like there were maybe the women's and even like maybe school girls that the the opportunities for young girls to play soccer like though a lot of them maybe like if they want to play seven or eight years old they had to play like on like schoolboys teams really which um do you want to even go back even further it, it was even more difficult for the likes of like Olivia O'Toole to to be playing because like there was this it was non-existent in um in a lot of cases for like uh for young for like school girls and young girls to play play football so so like definitely just talking to the likes of the to the nine girls themselves gave like a great insight into into their careers and into the, in the mindsets as well you know like and I thought like there was a few different and top talking to the actual nine like talk to the girls themselves one of the key I, one of the interesting ones I thought as well was like Stephanie like Roach Stephanie Zembra's um. As well, like I, I kind of really was interested just to kind of get a, you know, obviously with like with her, um, with her husband, like Dean Zember, playing League of Ireland football or playing at such a high level as well. It was just really kind of fascinating to see how, how like how they're like getting insight into their daily lives as well and like how their relationships work. And you can see how much football means to, to the both of them as well. And like how that like they're you could just see how and even like Dean was even saying how. You would have seen even Ireland qualifying for the World Cup, like even for someone like Stephanie would have been it, it meant an awful lot because of the journey that like she's been on. First of all, with women's football, but also like because she has been on like the Ireland's women's football journey for a long, long portion of it as well. So like definitely between like the players themselves and also getting to talk to maybe like second kind of hand interviews like with some of the some of the coaches, some of the players involved as well. It was great just to kind of get it helped to kind of get a kind of a well-rounded kind of a picture as well, you know. Was the Irish team threatening to strike in 2017 a really significant moment for a number of these players? 
Oh yeah, I'd say I'd say probably the was it hugely significant. Like, I think even Louise Quinn, like I, I, I kind of put it to her. Like, do you think there was a how big a turning point was it in in like women's football in Ireland and qual- ultimately qualifying for a World Cup? And like, like Louise Quinn, like her response was, uh, like it was the turning point. Do you know, like you could see, like in terms of your chapting Irish women's football, like the history. Like one thing, I think that's why I wanted to kind of put a, a key emphasis on that as well. Like the first chapter, obviously being the, the obviously qualifying for the World Cup with the Scotland. The game, like that, was a historic moment in itself. But then going to the this Liberty Hall, like it, it's probably it's it is another. It, it's probably one of the most significant moments in Irish women's football history. And even though it didn't happen on on a pitch, it happened like in the obviously at a press conference in them um, in Liberty Hall. But you can see this for the for the likes of like Denise O'Sullivan's and the Katie McCabe's of this world, and even for future generations as well. It just it really just kind of set down the foundations, like the. We want the we want high standards, and we're not going to we're not settling for second best anymore. And like you know, it's it's well documented how like even prior to that, how even and even like Sears Noonan as well alluded to it as well like even with the underage teams as well how it was it was it was nearly it was like, it wasn't the occurrence how they would have to kind of change like in in backrooms and airports and you know it it, it kind of happened for years like it, it it was kind of something around for nearly twenty thirty years really so if go back to the earlier chapters the, the likes of Olivia O'Toole and Linda Garman. Saying like it, it, they they were really in terms of the second like it was something how it, it, it went on like and that was probably the biggest surprise to them they're saying how it was going on for so long and nothing had changed but then it was that moment in twenty seventeen where the where the girls kind of said enough was enough and um that 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 stance was taken and I think Irish football like the women's football is probably it it it, it things have only gotten better since really and obviously qualified for the World Cup but then. Also, like if you look at the women's team now with the Nations League and stuff as well, like the, the it's in a much healthier place than like it would have been maybe 10, 15, like 20 years ago. What was the most surprising thing you learned over the course of writing the book? I I think that one well, that for myself really was definitely how how things have evolved, like even from I mean, even just trying like going how things have evolved in so many different ways, but just from putting my kind of my, my freelance journal or my journalism hat on or my book author hat on, just even in terms of researching, if you go back to, to see how media coverage like like it has it was not existing maybe if you go back into the looking like I was looking through like Linda Garman's chapter and the team the games that she managed for Ireland or Olivia O'Toole in her early days playing for Ireland and like if we're trying to it was actually quite difficult trying to find like. Look, going through newspaper archives, trying to find reports and things like that, because it was literally maybe only maybe only a couple of lines at the bottom of the page. And the Ireland women's team defeated Wales today one nil over in Cardiff. That like it was literally only a couple of lines at the bottom of a newspaper. Whereas like if you trend, like if you look at it at the landscape now, it's just it's a way more kind of front and centre, and it's it's kind of maybe on a level playing field with the with the men's, which is um. Def- and there's probably still a way to go probably as well but like definitely in terms of like television coverage for example if you turn on Sky Sports on a on a Friday or Saturday evening you're seeing like the like Premier League even I was watching last week for example the Manchester Derby Man, Man United Man City in the Women's League in England it was like 40,000 and it looked like the product is it looked like, it was great you know in, probably in terms of the skill levels and everything it's just it's it's kind of it's kind of it's on a par with the men's and I think thankfully on our in, in Ireland as well it's definitely kind of getting a lot more of a, a focus. Like, you know, it, it's a nearly an annual occurrence now. You're seeing like the the women's FAI Cup final now, which 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 in Tallis Stadium, you know, which was a a good game. I, I kind of found that quite enjoyable to watch being at Lone and Shells there um, a couple of weeks ago. 
and then obviously with the women's national team as well. So it's definitely, and I think obviously maybe like maybe if you compare to the men's team, the fact that maybe again the results certainly helps as well. But you know, you you could see like the it's it's really it's getting level parity like and more it's equal coverage in terms of the the, the co- it's getting like even with television coverage and also interviews and papers and stuff with players like you're getting a lot more accessibility to them as well which which is which is kind of refreshing to see as well so it, it that, that was definitely one of the standouts and you could just see how things have transformed in that sense but you could apply that to even maybe like this the football facilities and everything as well you know to, there's there's several layers to it. And you chose the number nine and did any other player come close to making the list like Emma Byrne with a record 130 caps Anya O'Gorman with 119 or the often forgotten Anne O'Brien from Inchicore who won six Italian leagues and four caps yeah I think that, that, that definitely probably was the one that was probably the hardest part just like trying to the fact there was only nine lives that you could be focused on like there, there was definitely you, I, I, and I think even I, I kind of put a big emphasis like, oh, like so there's there's seven like there was nine obviously four so you could you could easily probably you could have put twenty or thirty to, into a into a book like there probably even more into us because there's so many so many like so many women and so many girls who had such a big have had such an influential impact on, on the game in Ireland you know as well and like like Emma Byrne for example do I, I I kind of put a big kind of focus on her in in the Liberty Hall kind of chapter because she really was um the one of the real kind of behind that as well like the pioneers and one of the real leaders behind it. Just and I, I, her career like was exceptional like with, with Arsenal and everything, and it's probably you could probably you, you could possibly make cases with like with, with Emma Byrne that you could probably write a, a a whole book on her, her on her career and her life in football alone, but like, I I think it was just with the the way I kind of kind of chose it down really I just kind of wanted this focus on different just the, like with Olivia and um Linda Garman this focus like on the the kind of early days of the of the women's national team as well, and like Claire Scanlon as well that whole just someone who kind of went off and played um career like like who often played professionally in Japan and when in, in the night when really probably never never mind in men in women's football but also men to kind of go beyond like the like the UK and to kind of try to make a career. Though it was a big thing to do particularly that kind of stage in, in, in the nineties. And then obviously the likes of um with, with the with the current squad like you know like Katie McCabe and Denise O'Sullivan. Uh I I obviously two of the I mean, not only the best players in Ireland, probably the best players in the world. Like if you look at that list, like the the Guardian Top 100, like the you're going to see like Katie McCabe and Denise O'Sullivan almost on it nearly every year at this stage. So that was a, a kind of one the focus of that. And then as well, the, with, with the final one, then obviously with uh, with, with Sir Shannon, and I think the the reasoning was probably just to focus on someone who like who's probably who's kind of finding her her career, maybe her best days could still potentially be ahead of her. No, and, and just the folks on that kind of a career, but also just I, I think there's someone who could definitely bear that who could see the fruits of the labor from the likes of Liberty Hall as well, you know. And I think also it was just fascinating just to get insight with, with Sears as well from the just her, her, her kind of friendship as well with them, um, like with Chidoz Yagbeni and how they basically grew up in the same kind of housing estate in them um, in Cork City and how growing up on, on the lawn and playing out in the out in the housing estate and how they're both kind of. Forging kind of kind of careers for themselves in, in in football. Olivia O'Toole was an inspiration for so many players, scoring a record fifty four goals for Ireland. But she also had a very successful spell with Shamrock Rovers in the late nineties and early nineties. Just how good was she back then, particularly with the hoops? By all accounts. Yeah, definitely. But well, I say she her career was um was 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 outstanding really, and and, and again they get probably she probably 
you could argue she probably doesn't get the recognition that she deserves. Like like if she was probably playing in 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 the modern kind of day in the modern era, she probably would be real like a poster poster girl poster girl for Irish women's football, like a Katie McCabe or um or a Denise O'Sullivan. Like her 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 record speaks for itself, really. You know, it's, um she just seemed like you know a real finisher. No no matter what level she played at, she just had a knack of finding the back of the net. And it's probably a case if the game, if, or if the structures were here, no, or even like if maybe in, like globally, like or even like over in England, when you see like the that the league wasn't as advanced or as developed as it is now. When she was playing, like she's definitely someone who you think probably could be over playing um at the in, in the in women's super league um like like an Arsenal or any any Tottenham or Man City, Man United, any of those kind of clubs. She's probably someone who could have potentially went to that level as well. But you could even see not only that, but you could just see how with the current crop of players as well, how I'd say so many of them look up to her, like even like the, talking to like with Denise O'Sullivan, Louise Quinn, like Katie McCabe, Saoirse Noonan. You could see that so many of them look up to her um as a real role model and someone who um who's a real trailblazer for the for the game in Ireland. And I think also in that sense, like it was fitting like that she was present in them um, for that kind of historic moment as well when they when they uh, when they qualify for the World Cup. Um, in in Glasgow last year, and like it was a real kind of point, even this from documenting and looking back in as well, like photographs and stuff, you could see how like some so many of the current players that like they went over when they when they spotted her in the crowd, they went over and um kind of hugging her and just like embracing the moment, and they they knew as well like how much it would have meant to her, but also how how significant like the the journey that like that she was on as well, like she paved the way for um. And kind of blazed the trail for for the for the girls that um that made history this summer as well. So like, definitely her 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 influence and her place in Olivia O'Toole's place in Irish football history is um is is well established and it it, it her her regard is very high indeed in the game. Rover striker Stephanie Zamber said this summer that she was at peace with not making the World Cup squad. Was it the one thing missing from a great career in the game? Yeah, it, it probably like it. You know, you think of her when you think of like Stephanie's career now as well. It's it's probably it's probably the one like like in terms of being the trailblazer for the for for women for the women's football as well. And one of the one of the shining like who helped to kind of raise standards and who helped to really kind of raise the profile of 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 women's football in Ireland. Like, but her but her goal like the, the her FIFA Puskas nominated goal as well went viral around the world. Like it um it was it was a real like. You, and and the whole career, like she really was someone who um who had who had a significant influence on on the game here and also like on like with with, with the current squad as well, like she would have played a long long way and like obviously for so long as well she would have um gone a whole lot like tried to trying to qualify for these major tournaments and like it's probably it's probably the one like getting to a major tournament. That's, it's probably the one like if if it was on her CV, it probably would be absolutely kind of like it would be the cherry on top of the cake for. Uh, for a kind of a fantastic career that she has had in in women's football, and like you could definitely say, like her in like without a doubt, her influence was um was kind of her imprint has been on the game as well, and you could see the influence that she's had on raising standards and raising awareness of Irish women's football, and definitely she's definitely another one of the trailblazers for the for for for, for the game in Ireland as well. What did you make of the fallout from the departure of Vera Pau after the World Cup finals and the way Diane Caldwell slammed her management in public? Yeah, it was it was really um it was it was a kind of really fascinating. Talk. Even just comparing now to like the I finally like like with Stephen Kenny like in in, in recent weeks 
even like even though they, they weren't they weren't uh, like comparing to the women's team, like they, they probably weren't getting the results to the men's team, but you could see how they were all the players, even right up to the very end, like uh, of his tenure, like even before the New Zealand game last week, they were still coming out batting him to the back him to the hill and like speaking glowingly about him. Whereas like the, the, the if you kind of if you go the other side then obviously Ireland qualifying for the Women's World Cup under Viva Poe, and there seemed to be a lack like even even like you know, the, the, any time the players are being asked to this before before Viva departed like the players seemed to be kind of um, avoiding the topic or just trying to answer as, as best as they could and like it probably just shows a bit like going back to the Liberty Hall and like the the Caldwell if just on her comments it, it kind of shows. If you play like the logic of Liberty Hall and the demanding standards and raising of standards for the for, for the team and for the for women's football in Ireland, Ireland, it seems that, that that's exactly what they were doing in that sense as well. Like they, they they don't want to settle for second best and they want to they don't want to um like stall or they they want to constantly improve and constantly evolve. And it probably was a my sense from from looking at from like those couple of weeks even and even the aftermath of the World Cup. It looked like a group of players, like they, they felt like maybe like we we reached as far as we can with the with the current management and the current setup. And if you if you want more professional standards or if we're, if we're going to continue to progress, we we probably need a fresh voice in the in in the in the dressing room and in the managerial dugout. So like, it, I think definitely you're going to see that the high standards that that, that have been applied and the end call. But I think you, she definitely wants the best for the game in Ireland, and I think that's probably where where, where maybe where she was coming from in that sense as well. Their Cork City book, Game of My Life, featured seven former Rovers players, Ollie Cahill, Dan Murray, Billy Woods, Graham Cummins, Conor McCormick, Carl Shepard and Danny Murphy, who I actually interviewed a couple of months ago. Which of those seven players were your favourite as a City fan and why? Um, I think like for myself, like though I, I started getting like the first step going to League of Ireland kind of football games around thousand like thousand three, thousand four, thousand five. And one of one of those guys, they would have been like the likes of like Danny Murphy as well. Just he was with the one of the first players I would have really kind of would have been someone who I would have looked up to, like in watching on a football pitch, like just the the tenacity, the tenacity, and like the hundred percent. He just gave it a, ever absolutely everything, and he was just you could see he wasn't he was never shy from shying into tackles, and you could see like someone who just gave it his all, and like it was it was just someone really like you're saying oh that's what what you want from someone playing for your for your football team. And like and that's definitely something that comes across comes across and even all these years later, like when I interviewed like for the book as well, you could just see he just how coming in from out like how much Cork City the club means to the city of Cork and and to Cork in general. And he just it was just fascinating how someone from like from, from coming in from the UK or from outside of Cork, he came in and he bought into the whole <coughs> excuse me, the, the whole mentality of um well, I means to play for the football club. And you could just see that the, that impact, it, it's had a massive impact on him, you know, on his life, playing for Cork City and like you, that DNA, like um, it's it's ingrained in him, the club now. And uh, obviously, alluded to the, that, that's kind of backed up by the fact now he's back almost like 20 years later managing the the, team, the women's national team um, at Cork City at the moment in the Women's National League. And like it, it's probably, if, if it's someone like in terms of growing the standards and asking someone how much it means to play for Cork City and how much the club means, like, in terms of trying to grow like the women's side of the club and as they try to hope as they hope to improve over the coming kind of years ahead. There's probably no better men in the dog out, I suppose, um, than Danny to, to remind them how much the how much the club means and just like just a reminder of uh, the club that they're playing for. So like yeah, he was definitely was one of the 
was one of the standouts. Like, but then obviously, you could you could give me you could say other thing like you know you could I guess be just as lonely, but other player like the likes of Carol Shepherd playing the the role that he had with the like with the double winning team under John Caulfield in 2017, like Conor McCormack as well, who was a real leader in in that team and in that dressing room, and like he's he's still doing that now to this day, obviously helping Galway getting promoted to the Premier Division. So like they're definitely. There, there, there's there's a lot of connection like, between the club and um, between, between Shamrock Rovers and, and Cork City, like some of like, even Ali Cattle as well, going back to 1998, um, like, and, and the FA Cup winning team and scoring in Europe. He, in terms of that, and that side, like, he, he, his skill, and he was one of the most technically gifted players on that team as well. So they're, 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 they're definitely, they're, they're, they're a lot of, they, for, they're, for various different reasons, they were, they're, they're players that I really um, enjoyed chanting for the book. Finally, Tim Clancy is back in management at Turner's Cross, having been appointed at the weekend. Liam Buckley left his role as sporting director. Does Clancy have to deliver an instant return to the Premier Division next season, in your opinion? Uh, I would, I'd, I'd say so. Just to be, just to be honest, with the with the way the club and just the, the demands on on the club, I, I think nothing. I'd say nothing. Definitely from the supporters, just to, if you're gauging it so far as well, I'd say nothing less than promotion will be will be accepted next year. And I'd say probably winning the league kind of go up automatically as well. So especially like with the with, with two full time teams that were there last year, Warford and Galway, out of the equation as well. And like in a weird, as much as the blow was, I think to to go down actually at the time in the in the playoff um, against Warford, I think. Just in terms of the re- the restructuring and the rebuilding that has to kind of go on at the club, it probably, ironically, it could, it could be a year down in the first division could um just like uh, and obviously with the new owner as well um Dermot Usher going to his second season now as well it, it could be doing that the first division might end up being being, being it might be end up being better for the club in the long run as well you know if you like um game compared to Shelburne like the twenty twenty I think they end up in twenty nineteen and they got relegated in, in twenty twenty and then going back up and they haven't really. You know they they've really progressed and evolved since, uh, and and obviously they're flying under the Amy Duff at the moment. But I, I think definitely it's a, it's going to be a fresh start for Cork City, and I think Tim Tim Clancy is a is a good appointment by the club. You know he knows the the first division and how much a, a battle it can be week to week, and knowing how to like with Drahada as well, getting them getting them promoted, and establishing them as a as a as a Premier Division club when they got promoted as well. And like that would like you know that would have been in a in a part time setup and like if he's coming down to the Cork City in a full time setup and I think as well it's the first appointment Cork City have made out, like outside of the club since John Caulfield in twenty thirteen like every like if you go like when John Caulfield left in twenty nineteen every manager since um has been like John Cotter, uh, Colin Healy, Richie Holland, even Liam Buckley in the dugout for a few for a small bit as well every everyone who's been in since. It's been someone who's kind of was already internally in the club already, so I think someone like Tim Clancy coming in, I think it could be a positive, and it might be what the club need as well. Just someone like coming in from the outside and having no loyalties or no connections to anyone at the club, and really just it, it could be the the person at the club need to to rebuild and to kind of put those the structures that they need to put in place. Thanks, John, and best of luck with the book. Where can people buy it? Um, at the moment, it's on, it's on it's on sale on Amazon right now, um, online, and then uh, I'd say over the coming weeks and months as well, we've opened to hit all like the all major bookshops um around the country. So like um yeah, online and and, and in bookshops, they'd be the two main ways anyway. Thanks very much, John. Super cheer. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you. So well done to Hannah again, official member of the Shamrock Rovers media team, prof, and Tifty's affiliate.
she is really knocking it out of the park with this one. Um, some great, some great points made in this about women. I always love hearing about that Rovers team that were brilliant back in the day, and um, fifty-four goals for Ireland. That record still hasn't been beaten, has it? Um, it's only Robbie Keane, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But um, yeah, st- that, that record stood for quite a while. You know, I'm, I'm interested in that '90s team as well. We we did a piece at the start of the season. Uh, Robert Goggins, uh, talking about that team, and everyone who saw Olivia Two play uh, just raves about her, don't they? Um, it was recorded. Dynamite was recorded a couple of weeks ago, actually. So the Cork relegation was still. Fresh in the mind. Uh, Hannah didn't ask him about handshake gate. <laughs> there you go. There was um, yeah. Just on women's, not so much women's football, but women's involvement in the game. Let's say. So female commentators. This debate actually blew up last week with Joey. Yeah, Barrett. I don't think I want to touch on that one. We're not going to touch on it because can we all agree that the biggest thing to take away from this, from the from the initial tweet, I think, is that he called us all an absolute fart parcel. I hadn't read that. I hadn't been up to date with it. And you call, I think you called me a fart parcel. And I was like, Prof's getting creative with his insults <laughs> now. But I think... He's doubled down on his um, nastiness. I, I genuinely can't believe his his tweets. I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, what are you doing? Like you're so wrong here. It's unbelievable. And he's just doubling down, tripling down. I'm just thinking, somebody take his phone off. He did double down. Um, people are saying he has a podcast coming out, so maybe he's just. It's exactly what it that's, is. That's how a lot of people just get attention. Um, cheap though, isn't it? It's a cheap way of doing it, really. Yeah, I remember Paul Scholes was always one. Like I suppose along with Roy Keane, but I just loved Paul Scholes as a player. But I also loved how you'd never see him interviewed. I like, hate it. Can you remember Paul Scholes being interviewed Match of the Day or anything? Sky, anything. Did you ever hear a quote from Paul Scholes? Nothing. No. The most unassuming, quiet man. Just unbelievable footballer. Then he gets in his car and he sped home. Wants nothing to do with media. Then when he retired and he decided to become a pundit, or he, he was... He had a book coming out, I think, wasn't it? And Something then, like that, he, yeah. He was mad for the punditry. But I don't know. I don't know why that, except Joey's taking a negative uh, route, I guess. Yeah, negative is one way of saying it. I think I remember listening to an interview with Paul Scholes or him doing punditry. I was like, oh, that's Paul Scholes. Yeah. Because I'd never heard him speak. So well, There you go. Um, Absolute fair parcel. We can file that under weird British insults. Yeah. Congrats to Brads as well, Prof. SSC Electricity SWI Men's Personality of the Year for this hat trick for that one. And of course, another four in a row in the bag. Bradza was named the PFBI Manager of the Year for the four consecutive years. So, um, mm-hmm. excellent stuff from Bradza. He's just picking up trophies and silverware everywhere. And there was a photo at the uh, at the awards ceremony 
with him and Stephen Kenny. And it was pointed out that the two of them had eight League of Ireland titles between them in the last 10 years. So you had 2014, 15, 16, 18, 20, 21, 22, 23. So the only two there were John Caulfield with Cork 2017 and Vinnie Perth with Dundalk in 2019. All the others in the last decade, Stephen Kenny and Stephen Bradley. What a show from the boys. <clears throat> Prof, four in a row League of World Champions have been shortlisted for the RTE sports team of the year. Now this is Chuck, this is this is Jammers this one, so we might not bag this one. So Brad's has been nominated for Sports Manager of the Year and same again, there's, I think there could be 12 nominees. So the awards will be broadcast live in RT1 on Saturday 16th. So Brad's is getting some weird over that tuxedo, isn't he? Uh, he certainly is. Uh, He's not just the, the tuxedo, is it? It's the, it's the runners as well that kind of stand out in the photos. Oh, he's got a different pair for every occasion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was also an interesting one. Uh, Derry goalkeeper Brian Marr won goalkeeper of the year. And there's a quote here from Juz. And he says, The irony is the trophy looks like a goalkeeper saving a penalty. <laughs> uh, he reckons it looks like... Well, I think it, it definitely does look like Packy Bonner save against Romania in 1990. And Juz finds this ironic that Mar never got near a penalty all year. Yeah, I got um, Brendan Clark vibes off of that one. So, <laughs> um, so Prof, we're flying here. I actually got a, I got a, a Instagram memory on this day last year. We hit the three thousand mark for season tickets, and we're already at three seven five zero. So a big improvement from we're last well year. Schedule, yeah. So we're well ahead of schedule ramping up for the 4k on Christmas Shelburne and Rovers are in discussions over a loan Dean for Liam Burke are they that's the thing it's all coming from well it came from Dan McDonald am I right yeah from the end though yeah so interesting stuff there we'll see what happens with that one meanwhile Shane of, Keegan, yeah, in terms strange, of the Shamrock rumours Gare uh, you have Dara Burns Rumoured to be joining us alone from MK Dons. Uh, he hasn't played a league game this season yet. He's only played EFL trophy games. So the word is that he is uh, open to coming back to the to Ireland on loan. So would be would be an excellent signing if it happens. I also noticed young James Abankwa had his loan deal from Udinese to Charlton cut short as well. So that's a young prospect I thought was very, very good before he left the league. Um, that's another one that's available. Shane Keegan left Cove, Prof. He was doing unbelievable work there. So um, it's been a tough off-season for them. They've lost Lee Stacey. They've lost Jack Doherty, who went to Cork. And they've lost Shane Keegan. So um, it's it's pretty much the brilliant season that Cove had. It's been torn asunder by departures. And Longford and Atlanta. This one, it was kind of close between each other as well so they both announced the signing of the same player at the same time <laughs> this is a first the Midlands Classico yeah. only in Ireland <laughs> I, I don't know that... I don't even know who he... actually don't know who he plays for no I, I could, I'd never heard of him just about that they play for two rival clubs as well uh, made it even funnier hmm. it's a weird one 
And Prof, this is the Prof's favourite segment, the Lens of Senior Cup is now a group format. I'll get your thoughts on this, Prof, actually. And we're in Group B, where we play at Lone, Longford and Minute. So um, there's only two Dylan, Dylan Hans. Was it Dylan Hans? So starting with Longford away on the Monday, January 22nd. So that is going to be Baltic, Prof. Yeah, I saw someone say they hope it's, uh, it's played in the weekend. Uh, I just laughed. Although, now that I think about it, we actually did play UCD at the start of the season. That was a Saturday, wasn't it? Yeah. But just in general, although if it's a pre-season competition, January 22nd, I think last year the President's Cup was around mid-February, wasn't it? Yeah. So, I suppose you could get a couple of weekends out of it, but I think once the President's Cup starts, it's always going to be Monday evening. It's always a cold Monday evening, somewhere Mm -hmm. like Bray. This and day. the Shannon Bar, don't forget the Shannon Bar, Prof. That was a great little spot that we ended up in just a little bit. I think it's just in Roscommon, but it's beside the Longford Bar. That's not too far from there. So we could end up heading down on a, on a wet Monday. Yeah. This just came out of left field, though, isn't it? Like a pre-season group stage at the fourth I'd round. I'd say they're happy with it. I'd say the clubs are happy with it. They're getting the Lens Senior Cup out of the way and they're getting their games in so they don't have to go around actively organising pre-season. So I'd say they're happy. I think they should do this with the League Cup like they did 20, 30 years ago. Get the league, get the most of the League Cup games at the, done at the start of the season because most people don't care about them and you can play your first team instead of friendlies. Whereas the Leicester Senior Cup, I think Rovers have traditionally, at least in Brazzers' time, we actually want to play the young players so it doesn't necessarily matter what stage of the season that's the senior cup is. Mar- also, correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Leinster senior teams will probably be happy with this because they will be fit and in season. Yeah, as opposed to playing like the fourth round game in February, and then the quarterfinal, and then the semifinal doesn't happen till like four months later. Yeah, the scheduling is just always mental in the Leinster senior cup. But yeah, a group stage in the Leinster Senior Cup. Not quite the Swiss system that we'll see in the Champions League next season. But what a time to be alive there. I don't I don't know about that Swiss system either. I mean, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, I don't know what they're trying to achieve. It's only one way to find out is when it actually gets put into action. But uh, Glenmelow Rovers, Prof, they've made. They're on the FAI Connect app now. Big win last week, 5-2 against the Black Forge. So they are flying at the minute. They're doing well, big Rovers lads involved there, so well done. Glenbelow Rovers again, and of course, they also donated to the GoFundMe, so big, big shout out to Ricky Keegan and Woolly and the boys, who were superb for helping us out with getting this off off the off and running as well. Yeah, and Woolly, get, Woolly and Ricky, if you're listening, can we bring back the, the Glenbelow quiz? Because that was, that was great last time. Brilliant night out. Absolutely, it has to be done <laughs> annually. And, of course, the George Bourne Memorial. We're going to try and bring all these things back, Prof. Great night, too. Gary, I never thought I'd um, get United Church's Football League Division 3 updates on an app on my phone, but we are. Yeah, um, Jaden's Francis team are on it and everything. It's crazy. (laughs) Um, Liam Scales, man of the match in Celtics, Champions League group game. Their first home... Oh, hold on. Was it their first home win in 10 years? Yep. Against Feyenoord, so a good 2-1 win. Scalesy on point again. Um, 
rumours there. Man United are looking at him, probably. They're looking at Skazzy, aren't they? Yeah. A yeah, excellent performance. Um, he's come a long way, isn't he? He's come a long way from UCD to his uh, sensational year and a half with us to looking like he would just be yet another one of those players who you knew he was good enough, but it wouldn't work out for him. He just was too far down the pecking order and the manager wouldn't give him a chance and just got the right break at the right time. And now he's, he's shown what he can do. It's... But to be fair, right, he was loaned out and he had a really good season at Aberdeen. He played, I think he played 30 plus games. Yeah. The, the mental resolve that he had to come back into that Celtic team and actually command the place as well has to be, has to, you have to applaud that because it's not often someone goes on loan comes back in and commands a starting place in that eleven, you know. Usually they'll they'll uh, they'll be shooed on or, or sold on or whatever, but big shout out to Scalesy. Yeah, it's a great story. Well done. So uh prof next up we've got Nico. It's the singing taxi man. So I'm delighted to be joined by uh Nico Crowley. He is Tata Person of the Year twenty twenty three, an award was bestowed upon him about a month ago now. So how are you doing Nico? Yeah, doing all right. Glad to be here. Um yeah, it's a strange one, really. It was just thrown at me, really. It wasn't something I would have gone looking for. Or well, Obviously, I knew I was nominated for an award, for a community award. Because I do an awful lot in the community, whether it's football or the Gaelic or the Hurling, or I'm involved in a drama club, do a lot of running, do an awful lot of work with um, nursing homes, with a wheelchair taxi. So there was a good mix of things, and it wasn't just this year. It was evolved over probably... 40 years they told me afterwards after the, the award they, they bring you in they tell you the reasons why you got it and they're sort of who no, not so much who nominated you you'll never find out who nominated you it's a community thing so but it was shocked on the day but the last month it's been odd really because it's just not me I'd rather just do stuff in the background and tip away and not be the centre for all the things but it's really brought me to the centre focus like being on stage and centre stage for I've been to uh, other awards that I've been nominated in the community with football awards. Thomas Davis had awards the other night. I was at an art gallery thing that I didn't even realise there was a, an art gallery in the warehouse in Tallaght. There's a, a family, Gagans they're called, Catherine Gagan is an artist. And uh, the family, the father would have been Patrick Gagan and he made parts are called Associate Rewinds, don't know if anyone heard of them, we certainly didn't before now, but they made certain parts that went to trance, and from that, the family built up, and the family were just unknown, or without looking for credit for it, but they do an awful lot of work for the community. Again, background stuff, and don't want to be seen, but the daughter's an artist, and once a year she puts on a Christmas fair for her art, and again, it was invitation, and it was like you're thrown into God forgive me Dublin 4 into a mix of people and here you are Nico Tala person of the year but it, listen it's done it's done now and the, the next year she'll be just that I'll get to see things in the community within Tala and the surrounding areas of Tala that I didn't know existed and a lot of them would be community based or innovation new companies setting up and that's where I see it going so hopefully it'll be an interesting year ahead if nothing else I'll ask a bit more about the war ceremony in a bit, but um, and all the local charity work you do. But first of all, your season ticket holder, Shamrock Rovers. How did you get into Rovers? Oh, how did I get into Rovers? I can have all day now. So I reckon 
I'm 51, going on 52, child of 72, so I reckon the first match would have been 78 in Milltown, and the fault of Rovers would be down to uh, an uncle of mine, uh, Reggie Norman, and Reggie again would be, I'm sure he's a lifetime member up there with, with Rovers, but at that stage it was Milltown, and we all played for Bushy Park Rangers, and after our matches, whether it was sun- Sunday afternoon would have been the league playing then, so we'd have finished our matches in Bushy Park, thrown onto a bus over to Milltown, legging in the turnstiles, and that's where it stemmed from. You'd go to the South Terrace and at half time, you'd go to the North Terrace and you watch the game. At the time, it would have been playing Buckley, Campbell, Harry Kenny, um, Neville, I think, would have been playing. And that's that's where it stemmed from. And your love for it just builds and builds and builds. And that was, I reckon I was six, and it just it was a cousin of mine who went as well, so we, we tagged on. And a lot of the games we would have went to would have been at home then. And I'd say around 80, 82, we start going to the away games on the buses with the lads, or Reggie Drive. We'd always do the close ones, Dundalk, Drogheda, or Patsy, or Shelbournes. We, an uncle who eventually moved to Sligo, so that was a weekend event for us. And in fairness to him, he still pops up and down. It suits him now on the Friday night where I'd be walking, so it doesn't. To drive up to Dublin, watch a match, and drive back home to Sligo. So, does it, Rovers will be. It'd be the centre core of our family, you know what I mean, as far as football is concerned. And I've loved every minute of it going to them. Like, there's a lot of players we've got to know, and a lot of lads I grew up with that thankfully have went on. They wouldn't have played for Rovers, but they played it standard league of Ireland like Richie Forty would have played going back to Bushy Park and Rangers um, Jason Carwell would have played he'd be a year, young, year or two younger than me and obviously his dad was involved in the club Jim Crawford would have been on the bus with me Jim would, from uh, Joestown so again Jim I'd say I'd give Jim I'm 51 he's probably hitting around 49 50 mark and we would have gone to Wolverhampton together and played a bit of ball but Jim kicked on Jim was a different beast altogether to what we played so and that's 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 where it started stem from going back to 78 and you just kept going Sundays was great because Sunday was a full day Sunday wasn't just a game of football in the morning Sunday was your whole day gone you were gone from Tala at wherever it was you'd be travelling in 65 down to Bushy Park and after Bushy Park you know you'd be dragged over now the uncles do their own things they'd have their few points in the little shed under the stand and I can clearly recall um, a very early stay as a young age, and it'll stick with me, that uh, he sent me over to get autographs over this, off these lads, and it was the Dubliners who would have been upstairs playing there on a Sunday afternoon, and it was the old £1 note, and it'd be all, sign your name on the back of the £1 note into the lollipop chair, and winner takes all. Now I'm sure there was probably one a note going in and four coming back out, but that's the way... That's the way trust was there then, you know what I mean? People loved it then. Might be good. You wouldn't get one pound now, draw now, in any pub. But uh, that's where it stemmed from. And it just grew. And football was, I say, Rangers up to about 15, 16. And Easter was a big thing then. We travelled over to Wolverhampton. And again, you got to just bonding. Football is just about bonding. And we packed in football about 18 and got back into it about 20 walk took over I got into the retail end of things and went around the country and then got back playing for uh, Ben Madigan I think would have been the first time and then I ended up with 
uh, Watergate up in Halle and then St. Melrones and St. Melrones was car down I stayed there for 27 years and now I'm up with Tala Town so and really what happened in between them I know it's a big gap now going from 18 but the over 45 they kicked in then and the reality is when we got the 35 as a club we should have been given back to Melrones and Melrones could have grown but we didn't we are the big greedy bunch and we just kept playing the over 35s and still at 52 I'm still playing over 35s football but that's that's a little bit, of, little bit of it in a few minutes. Well, Lowers would have gone on in the meantime. An awful lot would have gone on in the middle of that. But it, again, soccer was always a... I could have made it a choice early to go to the guard. I didn't. Soccer was for me. And now, as it turns out, with two lads and a girl, and the lads went done the, the split. They were playing guard one weekend, and now they're playing soccer. And you find yourself, again, in the community falling into what's in our community and helping out and found the love for Thomas Davis as well so there's a good mix in Tally you get a bit of abuse for being caught on the sideline with the, the soccer and the gal and when Rovers came to Tally I loved it absolutely loved it but because I would have known so many people up in Thomas Davis there'd have been a little bit of friction I never let it get under my skin because if there's anyone giving time to any sport I'd put my hand shake my hand or anything you know what I mean so there's an awful lot involved in volunteering and giving yourself up and giving time. Give, just give time to kids. Not everyone can do it. Like, there's enough. In this day and age, not everyone can do it because life takes over, work takes over, and I'm sure, and I know, I know from talking to people, they'd love to give more time to helping their kids play, but they just can't. So it's in the hands of people who can, and it's in the hands of good community people and volunteers. And that's what I ended up becoming a good volunteer whether it was with Thomas Davis or Tallatown and we would have taken a Tallatown team from under 7 again because it's your own all the way through to 18s last year in some you wouldn't have been involved in every year but we got them back out in 18s and they're gone senior now and the whole idea for me is football is just keep them socially engaged they don't have to win everything if they can grow up and be a tight unit together it keeps them from getting involved in other things. And it, it keeps them, you'll get six or seven lads, and I guarantee you, we've done it with Mel Rowans, they'll, they mightn't see each other from one end of the year to the next, but if they do later in life, football will be the bond that'll keep them. And football will be the thing they're talking about. And football will be the laughs that they had, or the games that they had, or whatever silly situations they got themselves into. But it's just that mix of sports and everything. I love an old sing song as well, so I ended up getting involved in the drama club as well up in Tala, the now and then. And we put shows on in uh, the priory of all places, which is a, not that, and it wouldn't have been driven through religion. And But, but I still think everyone is entitled to their faith if they want to, but it wouldn't have been driven through religion. It's open to all communities or all religions. But we put, uh, we done Jesus Christ Superstar last Easter. And it was super. And prior to that, we'd done Joseph and his amazing technical dream coat. And you get the absolute piss taken now here by our mates. But that's part and parcel. They'll still go and they'll still buy the seats and they'll still sit and watch it. And they'll still rip the piss out of it and the dragon afterwards. And that's what we enjoy. That's a little bit of me. The uh, Then I got into... Uh, well, there's loads of gaps there. But work-wise, I eventually ended up in um, a wheelchair taxi. And that brought me into the nursing home and things. So then I, with the wheelchair, I was 
started going in, getting bringing kids to school, got us at school run, and then after that, going into nursing homes and bringing them to their appointments, and you get to know people that are sort of my own mum is not well at the moment. She'd have dementia, so there's a lot going on within our own house as well, trying to organise time and care. So we understand that end of things for people. So I probably had a little bit more compassion for families and their parents that were involved in that and that their, their children and. Just sort of, I probably got it a little bit more than other taxi drivers. I'm not saying I'm sure there's loads out there that, that can get it and understand. But I enjoyed what I was doing, and then you build a good sort of. What, what, I don't know what the word with this. You build a good bond with the people, and they'll always come back to you, and you're the go-to for any little bits and pieces, and you help them out, and that built up then. Then I ended up helping nursing homes up in Tallaght, the TLC up in Tallaght, Gladys Nursing Home and Harold's Cross, Orwell Nursing Home and. And it just all stemmed, and that keeps you busy. And then you you learn. There's one chap actually who was, and I know David uh, won't mind. I looked after uh, a great Rovers man in my eyes, and an Everton man, Mick Megan. Would you remember Mick Megan? So for the last year, we'd have brought Mick Megan home every Tuesday and Friday. He'd go home for his dinner, go home, go home to Dundrum. And Mick was a big man, but Mick unfortunately ended up in a wheelchair. But uh, when you see Mick sitting in a wheelchair and you see his knees nearly in line with his eyes, you know you're dealing with someone who was a, a beast of a man. But when you get talking to him and he tells you, but like he was fully aware, Mick was nearly, I think he was 85 or 86 when he passed away, unfortunately. But uh, even up to his last few weeks, he'd be going home and you'd bring him back to the nursing home and he'd say, Nick, I'll drive down here and we drive down by Milltown. And he'd just stop, and he'd sit and look at the drop and well. He'd say, stop down here for a minute. We played head tennis in there. And I'd sit there with the lads, and I wish he... He was very much sort of, again, another community-based man around Dundrum. And I think he worked in the, the Dundrum Mental Hospital for a while. Again, keeping lads playing football. But Mick played up to... I don't know, I'm sure there's people out there now Mick Megan better than I would. But Mick played well into probably his 60s at a good level of football and I think he's might be in the only I think if I'm not mistaken he's probably the only father and son combination that played for overs they've played against Bowers in the cup match could be wrong or could be held up put my hands up in the air if I'm wrong on that but uh, I don't know if there's many father and son combinations that have played for overs over the years in a competitive game of football but uh, he, t- he tells you these stories and he loved them he, when he went to Everton I think there was a uh, Eggleton, there was an Eggleton over there. Well, we Tony Eggleton. Uh, Tommy. Tommy Eggleton, Tony's his brother. Uh, but Tommy Eggleton took him under his wing. So there might be a few years difference between those two. And <coughs> he says, they played a match on a Saturday, and within an hour, they'd be back on the boat, back to Dublin. And then they'd go back again the following weekend. And that's, he just seemed to have a great life. I think he was, football gave him a good innings. He was the first official Irish manager. Prior to him, there would have been like, uh, you could hardly call it white collar managers, but it was picked by a board of directors, the FUI, and then it dropped down. So he was the first official. And he tell you, there was no money at the time. But I say, I didn't get to see Mick play myself, but uh, I believe from listening to people that know me, he was a hard old nut, but a fair old nut, and a fair and hard, and that's all you want to see.
in the flyer. But that was one of them. Make, and Mick was good friends with Theo Dunn. And unfortunately, Theo Dunn was uh, Mick would be in oh, well Notion Home, and Theo Dunn was in Gladys Notion Home. So we go from one down to the other, and Theo Dunn loved an old sing song now, so we'd love going down to Theo and have an old sing song with him. And sadly, they both passed away within a short space of time. Each other, but the, again, it's, it's you got, got to meet two great men of football and talk to them outside football. Theo Rose would be shouting at me, ref, oh, you the last sort of four or five years because of the way football went and there was a lack of referees we became a referee as well for the DDSL and we went in once or twice with me referee gear on Theo we jumping out and say referee referee but, uh, and then I sit down and have a, have a chat with him and have a sing song with him but uh, that's that's what I do I just potter around and tip away and try and do my own thing and because we do all these things and I'm mixed up with them all Somebody out there thinks I've brought it to the fore now. That's work wise I do. The charity work I do will be sort of stand back to a lot further than that. And that was true where uh, I started off the charity end of things with Avian's Pink Toy. I don't know if anyone has ever heard of Avian's Pink Toy, but Avian's Pink Toy would be a charity that's tied into um, St. John's Ward in Crumlin Hospital. And a cousin of ours, Jimmy Norman, Avian is his daughter. And she passed away a good few years now. I think she would might have been 21 this year, but she was young enough when she passed away. And Jimmy set up a, a charity for the families of children going through fighting cancer. Fight like a child would be a, a slogan that they use. And it just it's a charity that supports families. They could be coming from any part of the country. And they'd be stuck. They mightn't have accommodation. The parents might have to give up work. That there could be like everything else to be bills coming in the house and Jimmy went through all this and this Jim there's another chap as well Mick that helped him out and they went through it all and they seen these little pockets where people were struggling and then now they're giving back and Avon's Pink Toy is steamrolled into it a huge charity it's fantastic so I got involved with them we ended up bringing young children from Temple Street to St Luke's for treatment and stuff and you get you build again you build up a bond through bringing them every day of the week and their parents and some of their parents are young and in fact there's one young girl we brought from uh, Temple Street and thank God she's doing fantastic now April is her name but uh, on her last day in uh, St Luke she was mad into Spider-Man so this stemmed me into thinking so I dressed up as Spider-Man and the two of us went in hand in hand down the corridor in for our last treatment and then we came out and we stayed we stayed in costume I drove the taxi and she stayed in the back of our chair and we got our mom masks for our mom and we drove through town and we got the guards to give us an escort all the way down O'Connell Street and it, it was a beautiful moment but it's little things like that that people come back to me and say like why do you do that like, and it's just it's just the extra little mile you, you're doing it you, you don't realise you're doing it, but you're going the extra mile. So, and then I start getting because of the chart getting involved in the charity. I start running then. I always wanted to do a marathon. So at 39, my own son was there. Uh, running 39, yeah. I think I had a son born at 30, when I was 39, 38, 39. But uh, the uncle gone back to Reggie. Reggie would have been running the marathons, and two other uncles, Leslie and Jerry, and Leslie pulled out the night. 
my own son was getting baptized and again going back we were in the dragon and I says I'll go out and do it in the morning so th- at that time I would have been having a few beers I'd have, but I got up the next morning half seven pottered into town stuck my shorts on and went off and done the marathon about uh, because I was playing football I think I felt a little bit easier so I think I done four hours 20 minutes in the marathon and from that day on that was 2010 maybe I just started running and then I all the running I'd done I started picking different charities around local areas all sorts of based within that community and then we done a big one for Laurel Lane with Ray Darcy I joined them we done a marathon a week for the 52 weeks of the year and it was a slog now for the legs but if you're getting out and doing someone gets some joy out of it that's all that's all you want and this year today will be my 347th 5k in a row so every day this year I've done either 5k or more when I say more, I've taken in a few marathons in it and a few half marathons. But uh, my mission is to do, we've only got 19 days left, the 365 days of the year, every day go out and do 5k. So I'm on target for that. And that, in a nutshell, could be all me, without work. <laughs> uh, well, as for the, the ceremony itself, for Tyler Person of the Year, uh, you're the award winner, you have the chance to prove it. You're not wearing them right now. But oh, uh, box here. <laughs> in a box, yeah. I'll show you them here. Look. Yeah, give us a look, actually. Yeah. yeah. So what, the way this works is, uh, so this is the 40th year, and going from the first one, they, they like to keep a hold on them. So it'd be like the old Lord Mayor's chain, but for every little, uh, what would you call that? A link. A link. For every link that's on it, it's the name of the person who's won it over the year. I don't know if you know any of them. Actually, we're thinking about six years ago, Shamrock Rovers might be in there somewhere. Do you wait aware that they won it? No, I wasn't. I don't know what year now. And I think at the time, Jonathan Roach would have collected it on their behalf because I've seen his picture up in there. So there's 85 would have been the first year, and Rose O'Keefe would have won it in 85. And again, I think Rose O'Keefe won it in 89. But it, Brady Sweet, these are all local people that would have, don't know if any of them would have any interest in Shamrock Rovers. Well, uh, we'll have a look after, see yeah, if we can find it. But uh, it was a few calls to me in, in the Echo. Uh, the headline was Joy for Singing Taxi Man. And yeah, uh, yeah. the front page, you got plenty of coverage. Uh, your son with you and the father, was that Ryan or Zach? No, that wasn't actually my son. That oh, was, was a young lad who won a. Uh, a Golden Heart Award. Oh, okay. Yeah, it does, and you're not the first to ask. So, or that's Ben. Ben, Ben won that award for the the Golden Heart Talent. They did four awards for children awards. Ben unfortunately lost his sister, um, Leah, again to child cancer. Going back a few years, and myself and his dad, uh, probably eight years ago, we done. Uh, we walked from Talent to Wexford. <clears throat> we done a hundred kilometer walk from, and again that was sort of charity based to help them up but Ben now helps his mum out uh, with her sister they have another sister who has um, difficulties at the moment sort of but Ben is very good to his mum and his sister Alicia who I can tell you now as a sports person will hopefully swim for Ireland so just keep an eye Alicia um, I can't think of a second name Kelly Alicia Kelly one to look out for in the swimming end of it but, uh, and that was Ben that was Ben that was on the front of it and the singing taxi man yeah I'd have a now fond of an old sing song now 
just it kills a bit of time with people in the taxi and nine times out of ten they're I say another of an, an older generation but they'd be nice and home people that are coming in if you put a smile on anyone's face that's all you really want you know what I mean gives them a little bit of comfort and, and they'd know the song's better than I was half the time all the oldies and goldies if I didn't sing a song <coughs> my, dad, my dad would be giving out to me but my dad loved an old sing song uh, on the night you're in utter disbelief that hasn't sunk in uh, like what was your immediate feeling when you were announced as the winner ah oh, see the way that feeling was all brought about by the awards was done so there was there was nine different categories so they obviously business arts and culture community care awards then they went on to um, there was innovation awards then they went on to merits for people who nearly made it and didn't get it and then they done lifetime awards and <coughs> within that you're sitting there I, you didn't win the community award with my son with me Ryan and uh, I said that's grand we'll watch the end of this and you're relaxed then you're just you're so relaxed because then you're thinking the winner is going to be picked out of the nine winners or the twelve winners that were there and then they start going on about the end and <coughs> you say reading a small little bit this this man has dedicated so much time but in the caption in the book that they had there was one line in it that yeah, they wrote and then someone know him as the singing taxi man and once he said that I just a moment I think they're talking about me and I he says they're not and then he announced the winner is Nick O'Crowley and he's just just blown away really because there's so much going on within our community and within Tala and the outskirts that I don't feel or didn't feel at the time why me? Like, there's no reason for me to be made Tala Person of the Year. I'm just one of many who does so much within the community. And I just, that's my little bit. I don't do it for to wave big flags, look at me. I do it first and foremost because I enjoy a lot of what I do. That's could be a, a good reason for it. And then if we're giving back, you're giving back to kids and you're helping them. And you're walking down the road and a lad is playing football on their 11s and he she's and shouts across oh how are you Nico that gives you a feel good factor or if you can even if you can remember his name of all the kids if you can remember how are you Aaron how are you Justin they feel good they feel good about walking around the community whether it's a Rovers jersey they have on or a Tallatown jersey or a Thomas Davis jersey or a St. Dan's or St. Mark's it's just if you can acknowledge people in the area that you're trying and it, it just gives everyone a bit of a lift I think because Life doesn't always open the air. People sink in life, and for whatever reason, people slump up and down. But if you can give a little bit back and give something to someone that might need it, then that's enough reward for me. The, the chains and the acknowledgement of Tala Person of the Year is a bonus on top of it. But just the it's it's just, it's just a good feeling. I'd be do a lot of running around Tala, and even if, if someone would be back in, you mightn't even know who the air. You just put your hand up in the air, and you wave it. And you know if they're driving, even if I'm driving along and I see someone, I'd be back them. You just know you're giving them a little boost. Unknown to you, you're giving them a little boost. They might call you all the names on the one. I look at that. I'll show you running in the middle of nowhere and pissing the rain or whatever it might be. But that's that's what you do. And there's there's plenty like me out there. There's really good people out there there's a, I went up Saturday to uh, Jobstown Running Club they had a Christmas 5k run and again they 
for this run alone they donated whatever funds they could get to, to um well anyone could donate to fail a con to still bear thing but it, because you're you're run you went there you run the 5k but there was other people there and girls and, and even men older men and that was their marathon to complete that 5k that was their in their heads that was their marathon they they struggled they were out of breath they said never again but to see someone get over the line and finish even even if it's 5k or 1k even just to set out a goal for yourself and finish it it's just it's amazing to see it like obviously I'd be a little bit fitter than someone but that doesn't make any odds to help them along and to see them finish it's just it's great within the community it's brilliant and that's and there's another chap does uh, I think it's Paul could be Paul like he paired looking after a company yeah uh, connect for I wouldn't even call it a company it's a community based initiative and I don't fully I'll eventually get up and talk to them I don't fully know what it all is about but it's definitely the key to it is to get kids not so much I wouldn't say disadvantaged but kids of any ages just to be involved be involved in your community whether it's through sport or find something it could be art it could be dancing you just find something that can they can get engaged in and feel comfortable doing and be part of the community because it just there's something for everybody if they want it there's something for everybody and there's someone there to help you find that something for you I, that's what I believe it could be wrong but. Um, when you're back in Tala in February for the new season are you expecting people to address you any differently or have a bit of banter over the award oh no I'd rather have a bit of crack about it yeah. oh absolutely like, when you play when you play with a bunch of lads and you're heading into your 50s and you play with them for 20 I couldn't even repeat the text that you would have gotten <laughs> but I know they're all uh, they're delighted for you on one hand but they want to lift the piss out of you like, they just want to just absolutely tell you where to put your medal as well at the same time but that's you get them and you know it's like anything you know they've a great sense of pride for you as well like it's like and you know, I wouldn't be wouldn't drink that much anymore because I'm on the road with a taxi but I do enjoy having a, a point with the lads sometimes we go away every year that would be the point for the year but uh, even to see them it's like anything lads want to lift the piss out of you and that's that's what you want to do your own age and you want that you want that engagement you don't want to be going sort of everything black and white you want to have that bit of crack with them but yeah really it'd be all sorts of language now we'll be throwing at you for winning it yeah yeah uh, finally it'd be remiss if I didn't ask about your dad's hat so the night you won the award you wore your late father's uh, trilby uh, so your dad Robert passed away in 2005 so you always wear your father's beloved hat which is nearly 40 years old now an important event so tell us about the hat and what your dad was like yeah I'm, I'm glad you asked that that's a nice old touch my dad my dad would have walked in there uh, family would have known Oliver Bond is where he was born and bread and butter as they say but he, he was a good old stalwart a, a real dub and a real dub who just liked to go up and sit in a bar and have a point that's as simple as he was he'd go off in the evening and he'd like to have a point but he worked in Bewley's of Grafton Street for 25 years and I'd say there's an awful lot of Dublin people over the years who have passed him by he worked on the old coffee grinding machine in the window and even when to, to think of me that I can smell 
I know that sounds crazy. I can smell that coffee off him. I can smell that. I can still feel that aura of coffee, even talking about him. But he was a real old school. And I think my dad passed away at 58. But he, they dressed old school. Like we looked at our fathers and they dressed in that old filby hat, suit, short and toy, where, no matter where they went. And they were clean cut. I think that generation of people born in the 40s, they would have walked hard and they would have walked, a lot of them would have walked in the rag trade. Your mum would have been sewing on a sewing machine, a singer sewing machine. My dad, apart from walking in beauties, on the side would have been a leather presser. So, a leather presser or a French polisher, but a leather presser was what he'd done most. And he would have, you're ironing really, but... Uh, he would have worked with John Russia and Roshan Donnelly was another designer. And they all the rag trade then would have been the back of South William Street and Grafton Street was on one side, so we'd pop from one to the other. But he was absolute character and that's probably where I got my love for song from as well, from him and going back to Reggie as well and the Normans and Hardles Cross and Healy's we grew up and and again for anyone fifty I think and that, that area, we grew up listening to our aunties and uncles sitting around the table having a sing song and definitely we got some of their personality off them we had to so I don't think I can go anywhere without unfortunately people having to listen to me and borrow the tears out of them and throw me in the corner and sing a few ballads and that would be me the worst thing you could do is throw a microphone at me and a karaoke machine because I'll just blare the thing over but uh yeah, music and sing song. And my dad, my dad, the, the hat, again going back to Ryan, Ryan is 18, so it's, it's 18 years since um, my dad passed, which would be 2005, going to 19. And Ryan was getting christened in St. Dominic's Church. And unfortunately, my dad passed away on the Saturday, Saturday morning. Dublin were playing Tyrone, I think the same day. I think Tyrone beat them that day. But all the family, everyone else had to leave. We we had my dad in the house. We waked him in the house, and we had to get a neighbour to come in and sit with him. But that hat would have been my dad's hat, and it would have sat on his coffin in the house. And then we carried it to the church, and it just stuck with us. It just it just seemed to happen that I just took it up everywhere. It wasn't deliberately taking it. Maybe I was consciously just taking it. I bring my dad with me. I brought him. We went up to uh, Crow Patrick. We climbed Crow Patrick. Jordan of someone last year with two very good friends of mine. Um, one had a bit of a bit of a, had a bit of a stroke and came over. Thank God, brand new, but he's in his early forties. And then the other chap, Donald, went on a bit of a weight loss program, which was brilliant and lost a super amount of weight. So we decided we'd go and climb Crow Patrick. Now it'd be alright for me, but for Sambo coming out with an illness and Donald coming out it was an absolute monster challenge for both of them in my head but we went up to Crow Patrick I took my dad's hat we climbed up it it was a beautiful afternoon up to the top we went we had a sing song at the top of it and then we came back down got them in for a swim sent them off for a bit to eat where I went and done my 5k around uh, wherever it is Westport and I drove up and drove back we had a sing song in the pub and we met a woman up there who was uh, came over and sat with us and sang with us. And it turns out her name was, well, we only Googled her the next day because we thought she was spitting from us. 
but it turned out she was an actress in Neighbours for from 92 to 98 but we got a great laugh at her Julie Mullins was her name but she went on then to uh, doing theatre work in the West End and for whatever reason just packed it in and bought a little house up in Westport and she walks between the Gaiety now the Gay Theatre and a theatre in Belfast and just writes for them and does and that's her little life that's her in a nutshell so yeah my dad comes everywhere for the moment anyway till I lose we've lost him now we've lost a hat a few years and then you find it in the middle of nowhere and pops up again it comes out again on another journey and then it'll be lost again but uh, that's it and I'm delighted I had it that night it just so happened that like, at 5 o'clock that night in the awards um. I was just going in ordinary clothes, my jeans and my t-shirt, and we got a phone call to say, it's formal dress, it's black toy. And I said, I don't have black toy, or anything like it. But Ryan, who was with me, had his devs only two or three weeks ago, prior to the, the awards, and he still had the suit there and a dicky bow, so I threw it all on. And hence, you're dressing up with a dicky bow, and the hat was coming on. And, and that was it, that's where that, the hat and the suit came from. The photographs could have been very different otherwise. Oh, they would have been all the clothes Ryan had on, because he wore my clothes and I wore his. That was it. Like Big and Tom Hanks, when he swapped clothes and jumped the piano or whatever it was. But that was, uh, that's where the hat came from, yeah. And I'm glad that my dad was brought into it. And I'm glad, like, now, the, another side of it, like, you're talking about your family and your dad. Like, I'm married, Natalie is my wife, and I have a 22-year-old daughter, Rebecca, and Ryan is 18, and Zach is 13. Now, Natalie could tell me where to go with the medal now because she claims it's put a burden on her life now but all the things I'll be going to or whatever. But it's great and I'm sure as a family they're delighted for me and again they're throwing at you. It's like the lads out the football team. Dad, is, do you know what we're getting into here? And I don't mind as I said to them once they're not getting the piss of them or someone's not taking your dad's this, your dad's that. But there's a certain amount of pride. The, the community is it's great and look there is people who say what's he doing with that someone else should have got that but that's life that's the way it goes I'll take it and I'll I'll start to represent Tala and the 191 nominees that were there and everybody else not only the 191 people that are nominated there's probably another five or 600 people out in Tala doing just as much as anybody and just so happened this year that it fell on my play and I'll represent anybody and every as best I can for the year and see where I go with it. Right, Nico, tell a person of the year, uh, you uh, have quite a life. I don't even know how you fish Jam Growers into all this, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but uh, no, uh, pleasure to meet you. Uh, thanks very much. Right. Thanks a minute, Carol. So, Nico, very, very active around the community. Um, it's fair play to him. He's, he's, just, he's just one of those people with a heart of gold, isn't he? Yeah, like I say, Gary, what a character. Um, I actually had loads of questions for him. <laughs> I didn't get to ask many of them. I think at the start, I just asked him, how is he doing? And he spoke for three minutes. Yeah, I um, was thinking, when I was listening to it, I was thinking, oh, here we go. But it was great, though. It was just, just when I talk to someone like that and I'm thoroughly entertained, I just let them go at it because it's it just makes for great listen, I think. Um, yeah, he's from Millbrook Lawns. Lives just across from Stephen Kenny, actually. Um, his long storied career in football. Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of robbers talk. Um, 
maybe we could we should feature him on maybe the safety's hotline or something because you tell me afterwards that Peter Eccles is definitely his favorite ever player. Um, so should hear from um Nico again at some stage. And it's funny because I put the word out that I wanted <laughs> to talk to Nico and that I was looking for his number. Didn't realize that he worked right next door to me in uh, mm-hmm. the Dublin Mail Center. He's been there for a few years. Um, I forgot to ask him if they put him in charge of the Sandy letters this year, but no. Uh, no better man. Yeah, well, thankfully someone's in there, Gary. Make sure they all get to the North Pole. But uh, that's not Nico's job. Uh, you talk about his run uh, 5K a day, every day, every day of the year. Personally, I still don't know why anybody would run when you don't have to, but fair play to them. <laughs> 5K a day. What, uh, did, what did you say? What was your quote? I run for buses and that's it. Yeah. Even if. Do you remember Owen Rice? He kind of just summed it up perfectly. It was just like, there was a question in the hotline about exercise and he just goes, yeah, I tried to run once, but I didn't like it, so I just <laughs> didn't do it again. Uh, there's a taxi men gear. We have Mark Keaton, Ed Saul, Brendan Fox, even Pat Scuddy and Nace. So, throw in Nico here, and you have uh, a lot of good rowers, men, and taxis. Yeah, we have our fair share of them anyway. Not, uh, um, not a fan of the Thomas Davis links, but a bit controversial. Yeah, listen, he's talent man of the year. He's got he's to spread himself wide. He does, yeah. But quite the sportsman. But I think we can all agree we love the hat. And that's the photo you're going to see on the cover of the podcast today. Nick on his fabulous hat that his dad wore uh, all his life. Yeah, so big shout out to Nico and we're definitely going to have him back again. But Prof, that is a swift one this week. We'll be back with our 80 special next week. So definitely drop in. The Profs, 1pm. We will be starting for 1pm because you have the fabulous Jonesy and Baza McCarthy on in the Civic and we want to make sure everybody who has their tickets I'd say it's sold out at this stage Prof I think there was five left last time we checked so you have the lads in the Civic Theatre you, the, you know you're at the Dublin Derby as they say you know you're at pool the half day so, isn't it yeah we'll be kicking off at one o'clock in the Provs upstairs come and get your points of white horse um, it's going to be and, a bit of crack and what's happening downstairs Gary there's the Santa van <laughs> Santa is going to be there. So you want to come down and uh, get your present off, Santi. That's no problem. And of course, there's new cocktails. Abby is quite adept at the new Pink Wave. So that's another one. Pink Wave gin cocktails by young Abby. So I was talking to, talking to the Rish about this earlier. And I compared this to like the old sitcoms where you'd have a character and he would book, he would have two dates with two different people at the same time and how he just, and just the hijinks that would ensue. Yeah. And he somehow Going has to go and back down. and forth between them. So that's going to be you recording our podcast and then going down and being a family man with Santa and then back up to the <laughs> podcast again. And I'll you're going to let down. on as if that's not actually happened. You're just going to be like, sorry, I've just gone down for a point or a piss or whatever. <laughs> You're actually doing something else entirely down there. Putting the Santa suit on as I jump down the <laughs> stairs. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, that's so, yeah, um, Jason Maloney, Jim Conroy. They're our 80s guests. 
taking a stroll down memory lane. Um, it's no, time to record here. I still, I'm not sure if we're going to do the full on seventies documentary style. I think we will to an extent, but this is a two part. You know, it. I just think because of the era that it is and the two men who they are. It's going to be dominated by their stories and memories of trips and games. So I think it might be more fluid than the 70s one. I mean, we might let their memories dictate where we go. I'd be happy with that because, yeah. it, like I said, there's no better guys to have with the photographic memories that they have. So I'm um, really, really looking forward to it. And, of course, don't forget you can pick up your Pico T-shirt as well if you don't make it to the club. My, uh, to the car park in Tele Stadium on Saturday so prop that is it little catch up and a few drinks on Christmas on Sunday in the prop so that is it for this one, week one thing oh, uh, one thing before we go the Civic Theatre the Civic Theatre one last plug there get your tickets on the Civic Theatre website it's the only place to get them uh, so yeah get your tickets be there be part of the TFT's experience uh, we talked a bit about it last time how it's not just going to be a chat and interviews it's going to be a theatre experience. So we've got a lot of fun things planned for our audience and uh, for a mere €25. Euro. So it'll be 80 minutes, which is actually less than a Robbers game. I remember by that stage, you won't have seen Robbers play a competitive game for two and a half months. So you'll be crying out for you as a Robbers fix. That part of January where nothing happens. Yep. Everybody's broke. And then you realise, I've got a bloody Tifties ticket sitting there that I got <laughs> off me missus for Christmas. And then you go and you have the time of your life, January 13th in the Civic. Absolutely, yeah. So, one time only. No recording for future release. Be there or miss out. And, like I say, it's not just us chatting to players, but that is certainly part of it. Because I said I'm going to reveal... Who will be joining us on stage? One member of the 80s four in a row, one of the current team. So no, you're not here in person, Gary, but maybe a drum roll on your on your laptop there. It'll <laughs> do, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, they won all four medals. John Cody and Aaron Green. They are absolute. No, if if you are a fan of the Tifties universe, you will know that John Cody and Aaron Green are both two absolute characters. And Greener Cast is uh, one of our best podcasts of all time. And John is just a gent of a man. So we're really, really looking forward to having the two boys on stage and probably embarrassing them as well. We're going to go down that road because it's not often we're going to get on t- stage and be theatrical props. So we'll um, we'll do what we can. Now. But it's, um, um, it's going to be brilliant. Yeah, um, like you say, two, two great characters. Um, and both were genuinely delighted when, when we asked them as well, which made me think, yes, we've asked exactly the right two people here because they're friends of the show. They're great talkers. They're funny. And they were central to, to the two four in a row teams. And yeah, can't wait to see them on stage, Gar. We'll, we'll, we'll take the piss down a little bit, but <laughs> we'll... Uh, we should get some great stories about them from uh, their robbers yeah. days. Yeah, so that is it for this week, Prof. We will see you in the Provs on Sunday. So keep on hooping. See it.
Christmas comes this time each year. 